Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan the Cannibal Moriarty. Dagan, how are you today? (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. That was the the apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) Something we're playing with G.I. Joe's. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, Dagan, thank you for joining me today. Well, I'm joining you, actually. I'm in your house. We're joining each other. We're joining each other. It's been uh, good to be here. We were up late, real late last night until like four or five in the morning. We weren't recording. We went to the diner. Yes, we the, did. The, the diner around two thirty or so in the morning. Mm-hmm. The waitress wasn't there. Now, no. we were a little concerned that the waitress might not work there anymore because it's very rare for us to go there at that time and not see her. The other older woman that works there is a very sweet woman. She was there. Yeah. I wonder if we went there a little too late maybe to find her, but I don't think yeah. so. We've or been maybe there that the late. Day, the day? Yeah. Pr- yeah. She can't possibly work Thursday? constantly. No. I mean, maybe she can. I don't She's know. a maniac. She, she can grind. So oh my goodness. I didn't mean it in a sexual <laughs> way. I mean, she was grinding. I'm not attracted to this waitress. No, no. OK, not personally, but interesting. You know, to each his own or her own <laughs> or their own. <laughs> if you want to use the they and them pronouns, please. Dagan, for the uninitiated knockback is our retro and nostalgia podcast. We put it up every week. You can support us on patreon.com slash Collins last stand for early ad free access to every episode and also the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas to our show. We let you know the topics ahead of time and you submit your queries. And we actually have quite a few for today's very special episode, in my opinion. One of my very favorite books, arguably my favorite piece of fiction ever in written form. Wow. The Road. By wow. Cormac McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Now, Dagan, I don't know. I have to think about this. I don't know that we've ever covered a book on this show. We've covered movies that were adaptations. Yeah. And all of this. And there are, you know, obviously novelizations of the Star Wars movies and stuff. But I don't know right. that we've done. I think this is our first book. Yeah. Star Wars EU is the only thing I could think of that. Was yeah. The EU, I guess, is a partially, good Partially. Right. That was partially books. Right. You know, yeah. Mostly books. I would mostly say. So books. That's a good point. Yeah, so this is like a, a kind of a rarity for our show. We're in this will go live in the seventies, I think, somewhere. Not the nineteen seventies, but the seventies oh, in terms of the. Uh, we're not we're gonna go back in time. Would you like, like to go back in time? I'd like to go back to the seventies. Yeah, that would be fun. Absolutely. Now they argue that it's impossible, like physically impossible, to go back in time. But obviously, you can go forward in time, but just by manipulating relativity. Yeah. By going really fast and then coming back, for instance. Dude, that's a crazy. That's just crazy to wrap your head around that. Yeah, I the think the notion you, of that. Well, I don't. I, these are like kind of arbitrary numbers. I don't know the exact numbers, but it was something like if you traveled away from Earth at like half life spe- light speed for like a year and then came back, something like ten thousand years would have passed, or something ridiculous like that. That's, so you know, it's we. You and I were talking at the diner last night a little bit about 
I always go in for the theory. I love the theory that aliens are us mm. returning to visit ourselves in the past. Right. I which just is, love the notion of that. Which is uh, not to be spoilers, but it's been over for more than 10 years now. And it's kind of what Battlestar Galactic is about. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, so, you know, I, I like to think it's possible because I like the theory of that rather than there being. Well, it, it's kind of it's kind of interesting to think there also might be a whole separate entity than us out there. In oh, Martians. for sure. We were talking about Bob Lazar last night yeah. and, and Area S4 and all these kinds of things. Very interesting heavy. stuff. I don't, you know, I tweeted about it. I don't know that I believe him, but it's very believable and it's interesting nonetheless. I got to say, I, I watched him a little bit more this morning talking about some stuff. I, I think he's I think he's telling the truth. Do you think so? I just don't see it in his face that he's lying. Do you did you watch the government Bible like I told you to watch? No, no. Dude, I just you gotta watched see, various interviews. Did you got to see that video? Because uh, that's a primary source of him talking for like 45 minutes about everything that he did. It's like a proper edited video like that was sold in like 1991 or something like that. Okay. He's like yeah, in the desert in that. front of his like Corvette or something. And then he's like in a studio and. And talking about everything. That's, I think, the most interesting Bob Lazar video because that is contemporaneous to his the times in which he made his claims. Right. For, it's a good point. For people that don't know, Bob Lazar, L-A-Z-A-R, you should go look him up. He was on Rogan recently. That's why he has been kind of come back into prominence. But in the late 80s, this guy claimed that he worked at Area S4, which was like adjacent to Area 51, where he claims he worked on alien spacecraft that the United States government d- dug up in an archaeological dig in Nevada. And you know, Dagan and I were talking much of Nevada is off limits to anyone. So it's interesting that, you know, there's some there's some interesting shit going on in the desert. And everyone knows that. And Dagan and I were talking last night about how people would say, like, oh, these triangular planes and these weird spacecraft are flying around. Everyone's like, you're crazy. And then it ended up being the stealth fighter. Right. So it's not like unbelievable things are not happening over there. I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure that they are. And I was actually deep. Well, I didn't go to bed till like 6 a.m. last night. And I was reading about all sorts of like oh, that's cl- claims doing. and and stuff just about not even spaceships, but just about the crazy stuff that the government may, might be doing there. That is a currently. little more believable currently. Yeah. Wow. A lot of like spacecraft and, and plasma lasers and like all sorts of weird stuff like that. Weaponizing space. Anyway, that has nothing to do with the show that we're talking about today. But I want to recommend everyone go look at this Bob Lazar guy because it is very compelling. It He's is a, interesting. It is a very compelling conspiracy theory. I think it's impossible simply because I don't know why he would have access to this and not like the greatest minds in the yeah, world. And he's theory. certainly not one of the great minds in the world. No offense to Bob Lazar. So, yeah, that's that. You guys should go look into that. But today's episode is about the road. But Dagan, before we begin, mm-hmm. we are going back to our riverboat casino on the Mississippi River. Let's do it. In our minds. Mur, mur. No, that's not a riverboat casino. <laughs> 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 chaka, 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 chaka. That's a train. That's a train. I don't I'm confused. Now, Dagan, close enough. You do you want to explain this to everyone and then we'll go about our our riverboat casino game sure. call? Do you are you feeling lucky punk? Of course. <laughs> do you feel? Oh, lucky do, I'm sorry. Punk? Do you feel lucky punk? So, yeah, this is our opening segment for wave nine of knockback. So just again, based on my fascination with all things luck and the notion of luck, the mystery of luck, as it were, I would like to. The whole thing is centered around testing testing Colin's luck by doing a few different various tests involving cards, involving dice, involving coins, and we'll see four different tests to see what his luck is like. Now, it's been interesting so far since we've been doing the shows in person for this round, for this batch, because the first show we recorded, Colin got nearly perfect, three out of four. His luck was good. Yesterday's 
No, look, what was it? Last night's yeah. the last one we did. In the order that we recorded them. Right. You went zero for four. Right. Oh, awful. So now we'll see where it lands with these various tests of not skill, but luck. Well, we were like you we were saying, even the most consistent hitters, the Jeters and the Ted Williamses of the world, let's Absolutely. say, the Pete Roses, even they went over four sometimes. Although I think they often found their way on base with a walk or a hit by pitch. <laughs> what are you starting with? Let's start. I want to start with the best odds and work my way to the lowest odds. So okay. just out of curiosity, because the dice is obviously one and six. The cards are going to be one and eight. The coins okay. obviously one of one and two. OK, what is the number that you've decided? Let's make the number one and ten. One and ten. So All right. We'll so that's going to be the last. last. All right. So I'm going to flip the coin NFL uh, referee style. Let it fall on the turf and okay. we'll see what happens. I'm calling tails. Tails. He calls heads. All right. Heads, oh, for right. one. Oh, for one. All, All right. right. The dice is next. I'm rolling a small six sided die, die today. Little right. die one six D as we'd call it in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I'm calling it a three. Three. One. All right. Oh, my goodness. Odd number at least. Cards. We have two of each suit. Yep. For eight cards cumulative. I'm only trying to guess the suit. So I guess this will be actually one in four. Yes. So actually, we probably should have done this before the, the dice. All right. I'm calling a club. Okay. Actually, you know what? You should actually, you know what? You I, want I want, hold them? No, you should shuffle them because I actually think I just put them together. So I, okay, I want you to shuffle, shuffle them. You know, just like kind of put up. them together a little bit. Let me shuffle. Let's them make up. it nice and even because okay. I think the I think the cards are all suited. Okay. Boop. Boop. All right. I see that a Dragon Lance book is missing out of your card. I'm reading that. There. At oh, night. isn't that the interesting? First one. What is it? Dragons of Autumn Twilight. All right. There you go. Nerd. I remember when you got those. All right. I love, I love those books. All right. Club. It's a heart. Oh, All right. So, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and then the number you said, what is it? One through ten. OK, so no. So it's going to be because I know what I wrote. I, I pre thought this out. So I wrote this on the on the post-it note and folded it up for Colin already before we started the show today. So it's a one in ten chance we're saying. So let's do a number from 30 to 40. 30 to 40. Yeah. Guess a number from 30 to 40. Like Edgar Casey, I'm holding the paper to my head. Oh. How's that working for you? 36. Oh, pretty close. Can't open it. God damn it. <laughs> 34. All right. Not bad. Over four. Holy God. Four, I'm going to sl slump. You're this slumping. Is a, this is officially a slump. Oh, because you had two over fours in a row. Right. All right. Well, maybe you can't win time. them all. Maybe next time. Or maybe you can't win. I'm still looking for the eight ball because I like the eight ball for the end of the round because I like the eight ball to predict what the next one's going to be. I want to see how accurate the eight ball is. Right. But I can't find it. And sometimes you ask the eight ball questions that it can't even answer. Like you're not even asking the, the, like you can't <laughs> ask it specific questions. It doesn't know how to answer those. Magic eight balls were always weird. And then they would all eventually break. You know, they would get all weird. Like yeah. it, the, the weird die or tetrahedron or whatever the fuck is inside <laughs> the thing would, would get all bogged down and it wouldn't come up to the glass. Yeah. I wonder if the water gets like not only murkier, but like it gets thicker in consistency for some reason because there's viscous dye viscous, I would say. As one Disgusting. might say. Jeez. Well, who knows? Who invented the Magic Apple? That's a million dollar idea. That's so, probably a, a hundreds of millions of dollar idea. True. Actually. That's a good point. How old is the Magic Apple? Ball? Was that like a toy of the 50s? Yeah, it seems like a post-war toy. Right? I feel like that would be something that our parents. I would actually even maybe say like our parents were teenagers or in their 20s, maybe even. OK. You know, that doesn't seem like something that doesn't seem like something from the 50s, because that almost seems like. Oh, you think that's too that's too, going back too far. Yeah, just because specifically just because in, you know, Americana in the 50s didn't really seem embracing of the occult. And not that <laughs> not that magic eight balls are literally the occult like a Ouija board. Sure, but sure. I will say that it's kind of like the occult. I mean, you're kind of like, I don't know, speaking to some mystical spirit of some of some in some regards. It's so. similar to it. Yeah. 
So I just don't feel like that would come out in the 50s. Maybe the 60s and that would come out. I don't know. I'm too lazy to look it up. <laughs> I'm going to look it up for you. Look at this. What, what is it? The Magic Ape. This is Wikipedia. Okay. The Magic Ape Ball is a toy used for fortune telling or seeking advice developed in the 1950s and wow. manufactured by Mattel. Mattel. Oh, mm-hmm. that's a little boring. I, w- I would be more. Well, you know what? Let's not even get into it anymore. Because I, I, I'd be interested if someone buy that idea from, you know, Mattel buy that idea or do they come up with it organically? Oh, okay. So the 50s. There you go. Well, we were right on. It was a post-war Strange, era. It doesn't right? seem like something from before then. You so. know what else? Kyle? Look at this. It says materials, plastic, alcohol, and blue dye. Now, I knew about the blue dye. I knew about the plastic, but alcohol? That's odd. In case you, want, in case you get an answer you don't like and you can just drink it. Hey. All right. Solve that mystery. All right, Dave. Another mystery is in the road because we don't even know what happens in the book. And that's right. what's so fun about oh, it. Now, there already. let's... Let's begin this, I think, by consulting with the audience immediately and just getting some of their broad thoughts about the book and Let's do it, my friend, and all of this. And then we'll get into what the book's about and our thoughts on the book. So and remember, you can support us on Patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, where you can, of course, submit your queries. Alex Moans wrote into us and said the literary masterpiece is one of the greatest stories ever written to parchment. It is a true page turner. It proves that one does not need to be overly verbose in their writing style to convey a detailed and telling story. Good call. Oakley Waldron, our friend, wrote in and said, hey, guys, I very rarely read literature, but I read The Road for two reasons. Colin would strongly recommend it. And Neil Druckmann and Bruce Straley would often cite it as a big inspiration for The Last of Us, my mm-hmm. favorite game of all time. The book and The Last of Us made me realize how much I love the genre. There's something so incredibly interesting about seeing society collapse and how people deal with that. It's funny because when The Last of Us was announced and started to be talked about and long before it came out, I really started talking heavily about how it's so similar to the road. And that was something that was so strangely lost on a lot of games media, probably because none of them ever read a book. Chance McDaniel <laughs> wrote in and said, this book really showed me how much you can do with such a small amount of the English language. It has such a distinct style of writing that makes the entire thing feel understated and desolate. However, this understated economic style, which is a great way of putting it, really drives home the themes and tones of this utterly bleak book and its world. I'm so glad that you guys are talking about this because I need a Moriarty book club show. Well, this is about as close as you're going to get to it. And finally, Dagan, before we get into our thoughts, Blair Sutton wrote in and said, I listened to the Road audiobook within the last two years, and I have to say I was moved. The film adaptation was decent, but the book is special. Quote, goodness will find the little boy. It always has. It will again. End quote. Brought a tear to my eye. You're so right when you say Cormac McCarthy says so much with so little. Very nice. And the audio the audiobook is quite good. Did you listen to it recently? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. Dagan likes to re- listen to his audiobooks when he's working. I can't concentrate when I have to actively listen to something and then do something else. It's hard for me. It I can, can be listen, very difficult. I can listen to music sometimes, but I, I usually need silence when silence when <laughs> I uh, am working or just doing, you know, Absolutely. I have to do one thing at a time when I'm actually toiling away. No, it's hard when you have to concentrate. Yeah. Uh, in fact, if I try to listen to music or a podcast or an audiobook and I'm doing certain things like writing, if I'm plotting out an animation, like keep, you know, going through and, and plotting out the acting or key posing when I can listen, though, Kyle. Which is why animating itself is my favorite part of the entire process. When I'm actually animating frame to frame my scene, when I already plotted and keyed the whole thing out, I know exactly what pose is going where, what expression, and it's all blocked out. And I'm actually doing the, you know, the the you know what a lot of people would call the most toilsome work of going in and doing the actual frame by frame movement. That's when I can free myself up to listen to an audiobook or something. Nice or a Bob Lazar. My favorite interview. part of the pro- yeah exactly. All right. Dig in the road. Let's do it. Written by Cormac McCarthy. Now, I didn't realize this. 
to be fair, this is the only Cormac McCarthy book I've ever read. This is this is different than you, who is a big fan of the author, and we'll get into all of that. His real name is Charles McCarthy, by the way. This book was published in September of 2006, and it won the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. So this is a, a well-known book and a renowned book for its high quality. Cormac McCarthy, or Charles McCarthy, began as an active writer in 1965, and his big releases include 1985's The Blood Meridian, 1992's All the Pretty Horses, and 2005's No Country for Old Men. He's only written 10 books in his entire life, which I only, plus some plays, screenplays, essays, and more. And I didn't believe this. You know how old he is? He's old. How old? Like, is really he? old. Currently, right yeah, now. 85. Wow. It's older than I thought. I thought he was in his 70s. Yeah, I assumed he was in his late 60s or early 70s. Yeah. When he wrote. Or when I guess when I should say when the the road was released, he was in his early seventies, which is which is pretty amazing. So I had no idea Cormac McCarthy wow, is still that old, and he's working on a book, so he's still writing. He is working on something right now, is he? Yeah, he is. He's working on he's working on his eleventh book, I guess. Wow, cool. And I guess broadly speaking, the book is about. I mean, it's it's not broadly speaking because the book really is about simply the relationship between a father and a son in an entirely dire and hopeless post-apocalyptic situation in the United States. And it is really economic with its use of verbiage. It's I was telling Dagan that when you read books, you often come across words or I often come across words. I think everyone does where you don't really know what it means and you can kind of figure it out just by continuing to read and you get the idea. Sometimes you crack open a dictionary and look or whatever. Cormac McCarthy doesn't even use words like that. So like, I don't think there's a single word in the road that I don't understand. And I say that just because it's so accessible, yet it tells such a really deep, dark and dire story. And what I love about it so much is that it's it truly is hopeless. Like, I I don't really know, even with the, I guess, somewhat positive ending of the book after just really a bunch of negative stuff throughout its 300 pages or so. At the same time, I, I just feel like it's it's or my fascination with it is about what the book doesn't talk about as much as a, as what's in the book and all the theories surrounding like what happened to this world. And there's a lot of unanswered questions. You don't even know anyone's name in the book. No, no one's even literally named. It's boy, man. Right. That's basically yeah. the way that they talk about each other or they, you know, the, the kind of omniscient narrator, I should say, really talks about about it. And the style really is stripped down. In fact, Cormac McCarthy basically makes up his own rules that I don't think would be acceptable to most publishers and certainly to most new writers that were trying to pitch their book to like, you know, a publishing house. He doesn't use apostrophes in don't and won't and can't weird stuff like that. He doesn't use quotes. He basically just has stream of consciousness dialogue in which sometimes goes on for a page or more, in which you really have to pay attention to who's even talking just by their interchange back and forth so you can kind of get lost in some of that stuff and i'm really interested in that because it's so strange like why you would even write like that but for some reason it just works and you don't even really think about it so digging just from a preliminary standpoint i'm curious what your thoughts are on the road and and how you were introduced to it and and why you think it's a powerful book i'm i was thinking about if you introduced it to me and you know what? Also, I think I saw the movie before I read the book. I think the movie, even being a, a big Cormac McCarthy fan, I think the movie is what enticed me to read the novel. I don't think I think I saw the movie first, if I'm not mistaken. I was really kind of trying to scour my old man brain about that. But you know, it's really one of the seminal works centering about you know centering around post-apocalyptic. You know, it's one of the seminal post-apocalyptic works of fiction, and to me. It's such a striking story, not only because of that, you know, harsh, dire and hopeless setting, but it's really the story about, to me, it's really the story about the human spirit and human instinct. 
and it's how it's not the same for everybody. You know, it's sort of this, if you take this situation, it's the most hopeless, basically the most hopeless situation that man could ever know and still be alive. And how it shows how different people deal with that differently. And it's so striking to, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this and the whole notion of carrying the fire and sort of humans, it's so fascinating to me, humans sort of instinct and will to live even in the face of complete hopelessness, you know, and sort of that, you know, we'll get into this too, sort of that there's really kind of always something to live for. You know, if you look, you could actually even twist it in a hopeful way. And yeah, I mean, but just such a horrifying book, very bleak. But, you know, there's just so much to say about it, but we'll just start there. And really, just really, again, just a story about human instinct. It's so fascinating to me that, you know, you could see people's desire to live no matter how they're handling it. And we see people handle it in completely different ways in this in this book. Yeah, in heinous ways, and and, and unimaginably heinous ways. Which is actually. it's just fascinating. It really does show to me, Dagan, the the fragility of humanity about how tempered everything is in just such a way on Earth that everything works as it does. And I think we take that for granted. And if anything, The Road is really a cautionary tale in some sense. It's not about what happens in the book. It's certainly fundamentally about a relationship. But I think that the underlying tenet of the book has to be about that fragility and has to be about this unimaginable stuff happening in such a rapid at such a rapid pace, arguably over less than 10 years. Yeah. In the book. Yep. From normalcy to complete and utter chaos where almost everyone's dead and there's no hope. Nothing is even alive anymore. It happens in a blink of an eye. And about how the different relationships in a person's life, specifically the protagonist with his relationship with his wife, who you never meet, you only hear about in kind of his remembrances of her. And then, of course, with his son, about how different people take different tacks, I guess, in these situations and so the book begins really and ends in a very similar way in the sense that it's just about it's called the road because the boy and the man are simply trying to get south. Now, they don't specifically say where they are, but it's somewhat clear that they're in Appalachia. Yeah. And moving their way southward towards the Gulf of Mexico or maybe towards like the southeastern edge of the Atlantic Ocean along like Florida and South Carolina and stuff somewhere in there. And. Again, there's a lot of theories of, about specifically where they are and specifically what road this might be. It might be it, it could be like I-5, for instance, or something like that, which I think goes from Maine to Florida. I think it might even go in Ontario, right? That's the that road, run, that's yeah, the road that, that goes the all the way up East to. Coast. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's kind of the, the fundamental bracket around the entire book. That's what the book's about. It's simply about their journey from north to south over several hundred miles and what they encounter during I don't know how much time passes in the book. You can actually probably really carefully trace the chronology. He specifically says the man says in the book that he long ago stopped even keeping a calendar and that like he says something like he thinks it's October or something. He never says a year or anything like that. So you don't even know specifically what has happened. But the world that they find themselves in for people that aren't familiar with the book. And I really do hope you just shut this off and read it if you've not. Because it really could be read. It could really be read very quickly. Uh it's worth noting how I discovered the book was through my friend David Clayman, who I used to work with at IGN. And I was at a party at his house in 2008, right after this book came out. I was reading a book called Empire on the bus, and I came over to his house for the party. and I had this book. Empire is written by Orson Scott Card. It's the 
book that the game Shadow Complex is based on. And I really love that game. Oh, OK, it's about a it's about a civil war between the Democrats and the Republicans. That's what the book's about. And Orson Scott Card's not really considered like a highbrow writer or anything like that. And he's actually quite controversial these days. He's uh, apparently quite homophobic and stuff like that. So it's another one of those things where, you know, can you separate the art from the artist? But that's not what this is about right now. But my friend David took the book away from me. and He's like, you should read this instead. And he took my copy of Empire, put it on a shelf. I've never seen it again. And he gave me. So I never even finished Empire. And then he gave me The Road and I read it, uh, started reading it on the bus that night, going back to my house in San Francisco. And then I read it that night and I finished it in the morning. And that was it. That was the first time wow. I read the book. It is a page turner. It really is. It really and, is. And it's just so easy to read. It's just not thick. It's it, it's not like an Ayn Rand novel where like there is a thousand words on a page. Like it's like the smallest text. You need like a magnifying glass. You don't feel like you're making any progress when you're reading it. And it's so dense. Just the exact opposite of that. But the world that the boy and the man find themselves in is a world that has been completely wrecked by some sort of devastating something. No, the the frustrating thing for a lot of people with the book, and I think one of the most interesting things about talking about in the book is what happened in the book. And in fact, we have an inquiry about this, Dagan, okay, from Patreon. David Graham wrote into us and said, how do you believe the apocalypse happened? Mm. And then he asked later, what do you think the father died of? So. A, a, an important piece of the puzzle here that you find out more and more as we and it kind of gets more and more ingrained in the story is that the dad is dying of something and it's important for him to just get his son to a place where he has, I guess, the best chance of survival. And since they're basically in a perpetual winter situation, which we'll talk about in what happened, just getting to the south closest to the equator is just the best chance to possibly survive in this basically frozen barren landscape. But Dagan, what do you think happened in the world? Because this is something that is only alluded to by the effects of what happened, but it's never spoken about apart from that. No. So, so talk to me about your theory. And it's fascinating because as as soon as you start reading this book, you really want and you realize it's a post-apocalyptic situation. You really want to know that. And Cormac McCarthy has said it's not he purposely made it obscure because it's not really the point of the book, but just human nature. We want to know. And I researched so much into this, probably the, the largest chunk of research that I did surrounding this book. Because I always wanted to know. And I was of a mind years ago when I first read the book and watched the movie that um, – and I was hoping that the audiobook would somehow add a little bit of maybe a hint or two in some way. But I was of the mind before that it was some kind of a nuclear war situation. But have since been of the mind with, through all my research that it was sort of some kind of natural disaster. Now, I we were talking about this a little bit already, Kyle. There are some fans of the book. First of all, it's, there's a lot of fans of this book, not only of Cormac McCarthy, and of course, Oprah Winfrey put him on a, on the map when she started raving about this novel in particular. She, he, she really put Cormac McCarthy on the map as far as like becoming a very popular writer, although he was already very, always very critically acclaimed as far as I know, and also very really very much put up on a pedestal by his peers, by his writing peers as well. But she really gave him a modicum, you know, a whole nother modicum of fame. But so to read about the fans with this book in particular, because again, the writing style is very lean and you really have to glean for clues about everything in the story. But it was really a lot of fun for fan to, for me to read about fans of the book and how they would try to triangulate their, you know, the father and son's position throughout the trek and how they would try to triangulate, like you said, what time of year it was, what season it was, what year it was. Um, and people did some really, really cool research. They triangulated it like it has to be, like you said, somewhere in the Appalachians, somewhere, you know, along the Ohio River, West Virginia area, south of like Charleston, West Virginia or something. People have figured this out. 
or at least have made their best guesses, which is so cool that people put the time into this. But I also read a lot of theories and, you know, even like critical essays and stuff like that from like Ivy League schools about what happened. What was the backstory to this disaster and what what made the Earth die, basically? And a lot of people said that it was Yellowstone National Park in, in the United States, which is an, which I guess is essentially an underground supervolcano right. that that erupted. And this is what happened. So, and you know, there's a there's a whole thing, there's a whole passage in the book where the, it gives you a little bit of backstory where it says the clock stopped at 117, a long shear of light, and then a series of low concussions. So, and you get the father at you know the father figure the the man and his then wife who was I guess pregnant with the son when this initial event happens. Right. She's pregnant with the boy. They're in the bedroom together when this happens. And where did it, ha- you know, everybody has said, okay, we could ascertain clues if they're along somewhere in the Appalachians in West Virginia. And this happened in, you know, Wyoming slash Montana slash Idaho, then they would have seen that flash of light from that far away, but it wouldn't have affected them, you know, suddenly that would have taken a day, whatever, however long it would take for the dust and the, the heat and, you know, whatever explosions and concussions and earthquakes or whatever happened. So that's that tends to be what I think. People have said meteor strike. Yeah, like, that's I think one of the only other rational that you could things. see. Yeah, because it's funny because he does use the word concussion. That to me does speak of nuclear bombs, but because concussive blast is is something that is often that term is used with weapons, but it doesn't really make any sense because there doesn't seem to be any radiation and. Now, that doesn't mean that that couldn't have happened somewhere else and the radiation simply isn't in the United States or something like that. Everyone would still experience the same nuclear winter, which would be like, you know, clouds in the sky, dust in the sky, blocking the sun out forever. That would basically kill everything. This is what happens after massive volcanic eruptions. This has happened on Earth several times and has wiped out uh, all life on Earth several times. The dinosaurs. The the dinosaurs. Yeah, (laughs) there's apparently five or six extinction level events in in Earth's history. It's unbelievable. After life had begun, because obviously a massive collision with the protoplanet Via with Earth is what created the moon and all that kind of stuff. But that's like long before everything congealed, kind of, and and life started to kind of find a way, as Dr. Ian Malcolm would say. So, which we'll talk about Jurassic Park, obviously, in another show. Of course we will. So, to me, Dagan, the, the constant references of ash, fire, and there's an earthquake in the in the book as well does indicate that it is not global warming related, which is some, which are some theories because it's just too sudden. Global warming, if anything, is like a slow glacial killer. Not literally. It is also literally a, a killer of glaciers, but it is it is a glacially <laughs> moving killer. So I don't think that's it because yeah, this is all calm. about it, This is happening quick. Yes. Really, in geological terms, especially. So I actually think I love the theory of the Yellowstone supervolcano and people can go read about this. This was not even really known to have existed until over the last few decades. But there is a massive, massive volcano under Yellowstone Park that apparently has been dormant for a long time. And they say geologists say and volcanologists say when it explodes, it's going to fucking mess everything up bad and could be an extinction level event for for Earth. That's so crazy to think of. And they don't think it's going to happen like anytime soon, but they don't really know. Yeah. The reason I think that that's true is because of the earthquake reference. Why would there be there? There are earthquakes in in the East Coast. There was famously a few years ago, ago, uh, a 5.0 earthquake in Washington, D.C. that actually cracked the uh, the the massive phallus in Washington, D.C. that we call the Lincoln Memorial. 
or the Washington Memorial. That's how the Liberty Bell cracked as well. Uh, yes, of course, as well. Yes. <laughs> Everyone thinks that it was dropped or, or otherwise, you know, ruined. But <laughs> that was earthquake. But that was also an earthquake. So, yeah. So I think that that's a really good conclusion. I think that that's my A conclusion. I think my B conclusion would be a meteorite or yeah. a, not a meteorite, but a meteor Makes sense. or a comet. Yeah. Because that would also cause the same level of destruction where the sun would be blotted out. In fact, the man says this is a fascinating thing. The man says that it's remarkable, basically, when there's even shadows, because there, even in daytime, there's not even enough light getting through the sky through to even create a shadow on anything. Yeah, right. And at night, it is pitch black. And he's saying, like, they often are moving at night because it's safe and they can't see each other. Like, they're holding hands. That's, That's how, how dark. dark it is. It is never that dark. Unless, like, unless you're, it's like in a rainstorm in the middle of the woods or something like that. It is literally never that dark. Like where your eyes will eventually adjust and catch some light from a star exactly. or whatever the case might be. Right, right. So it is something catastrophic. And, and and to me, it is the most fascinating part of the book because I love how it, it portrays that this calamity happens that no one's ready for. And then society really quickly falls apart because the wife says in one of the flashbacks after the boy is born, and the boy doesn't seem like he's more than a toddler at this point. She says that they're going to rape him, the boy. Yeah. He, they, whoever they are. So this is only a couple of years or a few years after the calamity. And already, pe- like, it's a reasonable assumption that people are raping little boys. So it, got, and it went eat, south that quick. Yeah. And, and eating. She says they're going to they're going to kill. They're going to rape us. They're going to kill us and they're going to eat us. And that's like literally a few years after this happened. Yeah, exactly. So like even if you would imagine like a war situation, a nuclear war situation, some sort of conflict, some sort of global warming ep- epidemic or earthquake swarm or something like that, man, I something so bad happened that Earth com- and society just completely got turned on its head like yeah, that. Yeah, it was utter, utter devastation. So it's really interesting stuff, you know. It really is. And yeah, I, I find that to be. So compelling. I understand his point that that's not what it's about. My thing about that, though, Dagan, is I wonder if he even knows what happened. Like when you talk about like the triangulation of being like it's around Charleston and they're working their way south. He does make specific references that make it clear it's Appalachia. Uh, if you know anything about the geography there, definitely, definitely on right. the east coast of the United States. Right. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I wonder if he's like, I don't like when you talk about like, the Ivy League schools with these big write ups about it. And he's like, and, and they're talking about it. I don't know what happened. You know, I wonder. I, I hope that's not the case. Right. You because then that not. really sucks and yeah. that really ruins it for me. But at the same time, I don't really know what he gained out of not referencing what happened, even just in passing. Yeah. I think he just tries to give hints and the constant references to fire and ash, I think, is the hint you need. That is a big that is a big one. It's constant. He Basically, ash is everywhere, constantly falling from the sky at all times, yeah. so, which indicates that there is like active, possibly active volcanoes still something erupting. smoldering. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's weird. I like to think all great artists are magicians. And, you know, I will say and Cormac McCarthy doesn't necessarily seem like the pandering type, but not knowing and having people constantly guess, even after 10 years, 15 years, however long, you know, the book's almost that old now, that, you know, keeping people guessing about what the, you know, what the apocalypse was, what was the cause of this devastation is a is a draw to the book. You know, makes it, I really thought when I started my research on this that I could find the answer, that I could I could arrive at some definitive answer, even if it was like all the scholars say this, you know, but it's not. It's it's really dubious and it's really obscure, but it's super, super interesting. Now, we should talk about you and I discussed this a little bit, Kyle, 
in the, you know, again, spoiler alert, guys, definitely read this book before you listen to the pod. It's it's a page turn. You'll get through it really quickly. Yeah, I'd be surprised if it takes you more than a day or two to read. It's 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 really it's it's devastatingly beautiful book. It's so good, but highly, highly recommended. But, you know, in this later in the book, second half of the book, they come across an old man on the road and he says he actually says that there were warnings and we didn't listen. He says that. I might be paraphrasing, but that's a, that's essentially what he's saying. So what does that mean? Could it be? Yeah. And that's see, that indicates more of a global warming thing. But the the catastrophe couldn't have been no matter how much CO2 we pump into the earth. We can literally start pumping five times more CO2 into the plant and it's still not going to happen yeah. in 10 years. Right. Right. It's just not going to happen like that. It's just not possible because CO2 is constantly being absorbed by plants and it's just like a counteracting thing. Certainly the earth through man-made global warming is getting warmer. Maybe it's also solar activity and stuff like that. And the earth has been much warmer and much colder than it is now, which is why I'm, I'm I think we should control climate and, and, and be as green as possible just because I think we should care for the earth and stuff. But the whole like idea that we can't live on an earth that's a few degrees cooler or warmer is absurd. Uh, you might, you know, yeah, it's, 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 I, I just, I just think it's ridiculous. There were times on the planet where there was no ice at all on the earth, not one fucking piece of it. So, where like there were tropical plants growing in the Arctic. That's amazing. You know, around the time of some of the dinosaurs and stuff like that. And then there were times where uh, the ice, the glaciers were so big that they went all the way down to the equator, right? These are things that happen. We know this from ice core samples and from geological samples and obviously these great intelligent PhD scholars that can look at all these things. So that I say, I say that only because to me, that seems to indicate if your theory and the theory, the prevailing theory about the supervolcano in Yellowstone in Wyoming is true, he could simply be referencing that like it was rumbling and it was Absolutely. volcanoes typically don't just suddenly come awake. They don't. They, they There's earthquakes, especially something of that size probably would have, you know, its chamber was filling up. Geologists were probably like, oh, shit. Yeah. The earth, actually, if you look at Yellowstone, is swelling today because of it, because of the pressure. It's actually a swell. Uh, you know, it's not it's, a, so it's scary. It's not at sea level. Like it's actually slowly growing. It is going to happen. It's just a matter of, you know, how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years from now it probably exactly. will happen. And that maybe we'll have some sort of amazing technology that releases the pressure or something without any. I, I don't know how that would be. But can you imagine? So but you're right. It could be a, it could be a, something as simple as that. Right. Or if it's an asteroid, we can it, it would be unlikely. We, we track thousands of near Earth asteroids and some of them pass through what are called keyholes where if they pass into these certain places, then gravitational, you know, the gravitational pull when they come back will hit Earth and stuff like that. And there are all these theories like there are asteroids out there with like one in 1000 chance of hitting Earth, one in 10,000 chance and all that. So he could also be referencing that those warnings existed. It, it would be unlikely that an asteroid or a comet would come out of the clear blue sky and just hit the Earth. That's that's not going to happen. Yeah, I was going to talk to you about that. It, it might be, you know, these carbon, I think they're called carbonaceous uh, asteroids, these really dark, black, iron rich asteroids that are hard to see. We even if one of those was coming towards Earth, we probably have at least a few months, you know, so it's it, that could be the other thing he's talking about. And that's, of course, like what Deep Impact and Armageddon are about, which are sure. fun <laughs> movies, fun popcorn movies. So, yeah, I don't know what that character is referencing specifically, but it is one of the only telling statements in the entire book. It is one of the only things. But isn't it interesting that he would put that in there? Yeah, especially in this when you're saying in the same breath that that's not the point. You know, I it know be, he was inspired yeah. to write this because he basically uh, like just looked out the window one day. He was with his son. I mean, it's really a love story between a father and a son. And he has said that, that that's what this is. This book is about being a father of a son. And, 
you know, it was basically a love story between a father and a son. But he got this, he sort of was with his son in a hotel room, right? And looked out the window and saw this vision of like fire in the hills and was like, that's when he got the idea to do this book. That's what gave him, that was the, that was the seed for the whole thing. So it's interesting that, but it's interesting that he would, you know, this, this, uh, secondary character that pops up in the story later would allude to that he had that character didn't have to say that you know the guy could have said anything yeah it's weird it could be i wonder if it's like a macguffin of some sort or like Seems something like that's that. something that's thoughtless or like where because you would even think an editor if even if cormac mccarthy put that in there editors jobs are to make sure things are coherent and cogent so you would think that that had to be intentional especially with such like we were saying earlier such an economic use of words this book could be and I wish was three or four times longer than it is. I know, so, me too. like, I wish it was that. I wish it was an Iron Rand size thousand page novel where I would just d- be obsessed with it. You yeah. Know? So even you know I'm not because I'm not I'm obsessed. I usually don't get obsessed with books unless they're really lore rich and stuff like that. That's why I love Atlas Shrugged and stuff. And and this book's up there with that for me. But they're like two different books. One is like probably 500 pages too long. The other one's not even 500 pages long. Yeah. So very different styles of very writing. Very different. Now, Dagan, I'm curious. In terms of this, this you have a son yeah. that's about this boy's age. Exactly. And I wonder if that spoke speaks to you and especially spoke to you as you kind of went when we decided we wanted to do this episode, if that you went back and kind of thought about it through that lens. Yeah. About your relationship with Graydon. And, and it's a complicated thing because the other thing the father has to carry with him is the, basically the betrayal of his wife who kills herself because she doesn't want to live in this world anymore and abandons them. Yeah. But you can't really blame her. In fact, I somewhat feel like maybe you don't want to use the word antagonist, but maybe the person who's kind of off his rocker is the dad who's like dragging his son through this apocalyptic wasteland when really he probably should just kill them both. Well, that's her. That's her argument. Right. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you think about that, because it, like we'll talk about the cannibalism, which is really a huge part of the book oh as well. God, it's horrifying. But. It's one of the Aaron brought up the good point when we were talking about the book before I came here, where she was saying, like, it's it's just impossible to know what you would really do in that situation. Absolutely. And so we could always theorize. But I'm curious, like knowing that you never really know. Right. What do you think about the relationship between the father and son from your perspective as having a son and what you would do in that situation? Yeah, you know, it's I guess it's it's it, it would be pretty hard for you to say, like, you would take that you would have hand your boy the revolver and tell him to kill himself, which is basically <laughs> what the, the man says over and over again to him if anything happens to him. Right. So go ahead. It's understandable as a parent to, you know, explore the notion of wanting to save your kid, your child from torture from misery, from pain, from being, you know, God forbid, like, you know, the the worst possible things that a parent could imagine, raped, tortured, murdered, eaten, you know. And, you know, there's more to the cannibal situation that you and I will go into, too, with the book, which is really horrifying as far as, like, keeping the people alive that they're eating and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's dark as shit. It's really dark. Like eat them piece by piece. Basically. It's very authentic, though. It's very believable because you could see this happening. And, you know, that that exploration in this in the in the book, as far as like a making, you know, people making a moral decision of how they want to survive and if they want to survive. So, you know, the man's whole thing is car- of carrying the whole idea of carrying the fire, which is a constant conversation threaded throughout the book between the man and the son. Of carrying the fire, which you, you you seem to take the reader takes as a, as the notion of surviving and surviving without murdering, surviving without becoming a, eating humans and surviving and not killing ourselves 
we're not going to commit suicide. We're not going to become cannibals. We're not going to, we're not going to murder. We're going to survive and we're going to do it the moralistic way. And we're going to take, you know, quote unquote, the high road and trying to sort of impart that to his son throughout the journey. Because again, you have to also understand, I, I actually would forget sometimes when I was enjoying this book, the man is dying and he knows it. So he's trying to equip his son with all the tools, including all the, you know, inc- including the, you know, the ethos and the credo of how, how it, you know, a human needs to survive and how, what you need to do to survive and the philosophy you need to embrace. But also, but you could also see the wife's stance of wanting to just end it before, you know, of, of wanting to save your child from, you know, hell on earth, basically. You know, you, it's it's really it's really such a striking thing. And as a parent reading it, it's constantly in the back of your head. And, you know, this is the ultimate. I love that you said that this is the ultimate work of fiction where you're putting yourself in their place and trying to think how you would handle it. This is the ultimate. How would I handle this book? And again, you're just making complete guesses. But I love the notion. It's it's really, really touching and heartbreaking to me. The notion of wanting to still survive and wanting to still go on. And wanting to still live for something in the in the in the face of complete hopelessness, there is not there are no there is no vegetation alive in the world. There are no animal. It's it's said that there's no animals left alive in the world. There's nothing alive. Any any person, almost any person that they run across, has sinister intent. They're surviving by any means necessary. They're murdering. They're kidnapping. They're they're, they're cannibals. So. It's so striking to want to, and you could see the reason for the man wanting to live. His reason for living is for his son to see him, to help see him through this, help, you know, to survive as long as he can in order to equip his son with everything he needs to hopefully survive. Whether, whether it's getting to the sea and some light at the end of the tunnel there, you know, some kind of glimmer of hope just arriving in a new place or whatever it is, you know, hoping that he could stay alive for another year or two. So he could, you know, the son could be a little older, you know, maybe they could run across somebody and that could take, take over, you know, whatever. Yeah. Or he can learn how to take care of himself better or whatever. Right. Exactly. And that's, that's the interesting thing. And I'm glad you brought that up because we did fail to say that, that the world, because we've talked about the desolate nature of the world, but it is important to note that literally everything is dead. Everything's dead. There are, there's nothing alive anymore. Like Dagan said, no vegetation. The animals have been dead for years. And the people that are surviving are even doing so with stores that they find like seeds and, you know, there's all these great scenes of them finding like old rotten apples that they eat and and all this kind of stuff. Canned goods. Canned goods. Right. Or they're eating each other. And it's I'm a little bit agnostic on. My own take on cannibalism generally in that situation because who the fuck really knows it reminds me of that the book slash movie alive which i love we were talking we talked about <laughs> we, we, we talked about alive on this on like the movies that horrified oh, us it's, it's horrifying and there it's like totally normal rational people quickly fell into a situation where they were they became cannibals and then obviously the most most famous example of that is the donner party in the united states but it's like I don't I would like to think that I would never do that. And and my and my stance is that I would rather die than do something like that. Yes. But you're, I've not been in that position where like where you are facing death and you have op, you have one option and who knows what who knows what right. you would do. So that I try to remain as agnostic as possible in my analysis from that point of view, because I think I'm a good person. I think I'm I'm kind hearted and good. I don't I, I would imagine that nothing. I would never be in a situation where I would actively try to hunt down and hurt people like the way the cannibals, some of the cannibals do in the road. But 
just being just talking about cannibalism generally it's like who knows man i don't I know. know i have you know, no fucking knows? idea because you don't know what what is utter devastate what does utter starvation do to a person what does it do to your brain what does it do to your you know your whole mental well-being i mean do you just basically lose your mind who knows we don't know you know thank god no, we don't know that right these guys probably have all sorts of permanent nutritional def- deficiencies and stuff like that scurvy and all sorts of random things yeah. because they're not getting vitamin d deficiencies because they're not getting any sunlight like so yeah who the who even knows what the nature of humanity is generally at that point when they're you know we we evolved under the bright star we we, you know we we evolved to eat you know an omnivorous diet we evolved as a social as social beings and and all these kinds of things hyper intelligent and yeah who who could possibly know but the interesting thing, Dig, is as I've remained agnostic from that perspective, is that the one thing that I've changed my mind on and vacillated on a lot is, is everything really dead because of the ocean? Like, is there something going on deep in the ocean where there's some sort of life? And that life has found, and again, I don't want to reference Jurassic Park again overtly, but life has found a way, like we said many times, through similar devastations. And backing up a little bit, you and I last night were talking about something I was telling you about, which is called the year without a summer, which was 1815, I believe. And this happened because in 1814, there was a volcanic eruption of some consequence in Indonesia that put and ejected enough ejecta into the into the Earth's atmosphere. It wasn't blanketing the sky where it was blotting out the sun and stuff, but it caused some global temperature drop. Just this one volcano where it was snowing in New England in June and July, where crops weren't growing and stuff like that. That happened because of one volcano erupting once a- across the world. Thousands and, of miles away. And, you know, John Adams and people write, write about it in their older years about this thing where their crops aren't growing, where people are dying and starving. It wasn't like this catastrophe where it was like famine or anything like that. Right. Like you would see later on in Europe, especially and before that in Europe, obviously. But where it was the thing that was was making people really struggle. Now, that volcano is orders of magnitude, many orders of magnitude smaller than the mega volcano in Yellowstone. So I don't know that we actually could come back from something like that because I don't know, while comets have hit the earth and wiped out life, life always bounced back. But this seemed to be such a consequential thing where maybe it doesn't. I, I don't know. Life will end here eventually. It looks like that. And it seems like... Maybe that happens. And so I don't know. So I try to be a little bit more agnostic about if it really is the end. When I'm thinking about his will to survive and his will to get his son to survive, maybe, maybe, maybe people do live. Maybe, maybe Earth makes a comeback because even if, if the volcano settles down, the dust is eventually going to fall. The sun's eventually going to come back in. There are seeds and egg corns and pine cones and there might be animals burrowing underground and living. There might be dormant animals, animals under the sea. Maybe everything bounces back. But even something like that takes a bounce back from an extinction level event takes tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years. Isn't that amazing to think of? So even through that, even through that lens, you're not even living in a fallout like world like this, this nuclear where there's a nuclear bombardment. Right. And stuff like that. It's like it's way, way worse than that. Way worse than that, you know? Because fallout takes place in, you know, the, the bombing takes place in 2077 and fallout and 50 years later, everything's, you know, it's not normal, but everything's like, you know, kind of rebounding in some way. In that short amount of time. Right. So, yeah, I've tried to remain agnostic from that point of view. Yeah. It's, now, talking about the ocean, Kyle, mm-hmm. because, you know, it's actually you, you've planted an interesting thought in my head. They, you know, there's this quest to get to the sea 
and we know that's where they're heading, and you know he's hoping. You 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 think, or maybe it's intimated a time or two that, you know, he's hoping it'll be warmer down there. You could see also being near the ocean at least. For my thought, I always this is might be a funny thought. Tell me if you thought the same thing. If you're near the ocean, basically you have your back to the sea in that situation, so people can only really come at you from one side. In other words, it's sort of a protection. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you I trap mean, yourself in one way, but yeah, 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 yeah you kind of, yeah, you kind of run, you, yeah, that's true. You sort of block yourself off from the back, but, but also, I don't think they, it's ever discussed. Is he hoping there's some sort of life in the sea as far as food goes? Yeah, they never, they never say that. I think that they kind of throw the kibosh on that when they get there, and it's like the they talk about the ocean being like like everything washing up, dead and gray. Yeah, and like it's all gross and and ash ridden and stuff like that. But the most primitive life comes from the ocean. So the most primitive, like I, I'm, I was wondering, like is could plankton survive? Probably not because they they need photosynthesis. And, and then the most base plant, you know, the most base animal life re- requires plankton and then so on and so forth as the right. food chain moves up. So my assumption is that probably not even in the ocean would anything the necessarily survive since it, since the, the the basic plankton that is necessary for life requires sun. Right, right, right. right so right. it is a complicated thing. And, and that's why I think it's so fascinating because I just don't really understand. It is about the will to live and that that human fire, like you said. But I don't. I do grapple with like why 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 are you doing this? Yeah. It really it really is a struggle for me to like get around that. It doesn't seem like it's worth it. It's it seems like it's actually they're always cold, really cold. They're always really wet. Yeah, they're always they're always starving. They don't they go sometimes five seven days without eating anything. It's complete misery. It's like it's like what are you doing? It, just die. That's what's so touching to me about yeah. it, though. And how much also somebody, you know, and I'm not even, we'll get into the discussion about good versus bad or good versus evil. But just that the human instinct to live, just that push, that inert thing, that 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 thing inside of us that's like, no, you you have to survive. You know, that it's so on a on a human level, it's really interesting on an emotional level, just from being a person. It's really touching to me, you know, that whole thing of like, we have to survive and we have to do it. We have to do it the right way. You know, there's a right way and a wrong way and we have to do it the right way. You know, that that really speaks to me about the book. Very emotional, actually. It is. It's very emotional because it, it's 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 I think like a lot of good work, it, it, it could be frustrating. And I think that that's part of the intent of it. But I don't know. We have a letter here from Paul Waltz, not to be confused with the Southern rapper Paul Wall, who wrote into us. <laughs> hey, Paul said the road stands out as a favorite book of mine due to its extremely visual language and storytelling. I have distinct visions of the scenes depicted in the novel. In many ways, the environment surpasses the characters for me in terms of intrigue. What scenes from the road are forever cemented in your mind from a visual and imaginative perspective? I know what scene comes to my mind first. Tell me about yours first. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of them. I think that one of the scenes, one of them, there's a few scenes that I really like. There's a scene at the end where they leave. They always have this shopping cart with them full of whatever gear they have. And this is a doggy dog world, obviously, to the nth degree. So they leave their cart. They always are talking about how they hide their cart and they obscure its vision. So people don't know they're there and also don't steal their shit because everything's precious, right? Everything, all the houses they run into where most of them are totally ransacked long ago. There's nothing left. There's one cool thing where he finds food in a pantry, but he talks about how the people here last time didn't trust the food. And so why would he? And he moves on without taking it. Right. Oh, so that's a great scene. Yeah. So and then there's another scene where they find food and they're so hungry where they, it's like a similar situation. And they're just like, fuck it. And they eat it. 
and it ends up being fine. It's like potatoes and all these like these vegetables. Yeah. And so which is another interesting thing, because it's like you're eating these. You're like might be eating some of the last potatoes in the world. And the last string beans and Isn't stuff that, that, that have ever existed, oh, which is in itself fascinating. Uh, but the scene where their shopping cart is stolen by this other road, you know, traveler, he's not necessarily a hostile actor. I think he's really just by himself trying to survive. They have a gun, a revolver, which is pretty central to the story because they only have a few bullets in it and they actually use one of them to kill someone in the in the book, which is another great scene. But and one of the great scenes in the movie, which we'll that, obviously that talk about. But yeah, so they this guy steals the shopping cart and they find the guy and the dad makes the guy strip his clothes off and take all of his clothes off. Basically, it's a death sentence. He's done at that point. And it's so interesting to me because the dad shows such a goodness and a kindness and a patience throughout the entire book. And then at the very end, he does something hostile to another guy. Now, it was retrib- it was a retribution for someone doing something hostile to them. Yeah. But it shows about that sort of hum- human fire because the son is like really not it's not sitting well with him. Yeah. And they go back and they try to uh, they leave the clothes on the side of the road. But the guy's dead for sure. I mean, the guy's going to die. So uh, that scene really sticks out to me. And obviously the scene when they find and I'm, I think this is a scene you're talking about. So I'll let you talk about it. But the scene where they find the uh, the humans in the basement oh, is, is probably one of the the most visually striking scenes and one of the most frightening scenes in the book. And really shows like what they're dealing with here. Yeah. And so, yeah, you want I I assume that's the scene you're talking about. Yeah, that's one of the big ones for me, Kyle. You know, first of all, it's so it's it's a really great point. I'm glad we remember to discuss this. It is true that the boy sort of becomes I would say even throughout the story, in all fairness, he becomes the sort of moral barometer for the duo because and this is a really interesting thing. The boy has the wherewithal and sort of the autonomy to have a moral compass where the father's responsibility is the boy's safety so the father doesn't even have or feels like he doesn't even have the more a a complete you know sort of a more uh, the ability to sort of any kind of wiggle room morally because he his goal is to keep the boy safe so if that means killing another man or taking another man's clothes so he freezes to death, so be it. He has to look out for his son. Where the boy is approaching it from a very childlike perspective where he's not responsible for anybody. He's just, you know, so it's it's touching in a couple of ways, but also that you, you see the boy is inheriting his dad's moral compass, you know. And it also complicates things because the boy holds his dad to his morals where it seems like sometimes the dad's not practicing what he preaches. And in all fairness, that's because he's looking out for his son. But, right. you know, so that's a very interesting, that's a very interesting relationship throughout the, without the book. It happens again with feeding the old man. The, the, the father doesn't want to give the old man anything. And the boy sort of, sort of holds him to it. And it's, they're sort of down to their last food at that point. And the father even makes the boy feel a little bad. Like, you know, we, we, now we have the, you know, now we're going to survive for like one last day because you did that. You know, but the boy doesn't care. The boy just wants to help. Right. It's interesting because the boy has. And I think one of the interesting things that they talk about in the book, they only touch on it a few times in a literal way, but it's obvious the boy has no touchstones to the real world. He has no idea what like what anything was. This is his reality. Like he has no concept other than maybe, you know, I'm sure they ran into magazines and whatever he can read, which is one of the things that's interesting that they talk about in the book. So he's obviously been educated in some way by his dad as they've traveled, but which is cool. The boy has no clue what 
like he the dad says something along the lines of like they they go somewhere and they find like a toy ambulance or something and he's making like the noises of the train or the ambulance whatever they find yeah, and he realizes right, right. that like the boy doesn't even like that that doesn't mean anything he doesn't know what that is and there's often like figures of speech and and the etymology of those things that we all kind of inherently understand the grass is always green or whatever the case might be like where he doesn't understand what these things mean and all, many times many times he's like i don't know what that means he's never seen it right like he doesn't know what that whatever he just said is like whatever that reference is or he doesn't know right and so i think that that's one of the interesting things that you're that's a great point Dagan, because there is something inherent, I guess, about our humanity. He's taught, obviously, by his dad, because it is nature versus nurture. That's obviously a, an age old question. And I think it's a little bit of both. But for me, I, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, he's regardless of this really despicable situation, they find themselves in this horror, horrifying situation. The dad has imparted some wisdom onto the boy and the boy has some inherent guidance, I guess, or some inherent humanity where he still wants to be human. And it's interesting that he feels that way when all of the people around him, he's by far, I think, except for infants and some other children, I guess, that you encounter and that are being eaten, basically, that he's the youngest person you ever see in the book. So almost everyone else around him does come from the real world or did, did come from that world and yet have no or less of a moral guidance and a moral guide or that that makes them human. Yeah. So it doesn't really make any sense from that perspective. But that's kind of what's so powerful about it is that the people that should know better don't. And the person that doesn't know anything knows better. That is very interesting to put it that way. Yeah, to, to the fact where the old man is like, that, is that a child? You know, he hasn't seen one in so long. Right. You know. Because they're all dead or have been eaten. Right, which is so crazy. And also, there's a, there's a, you reminded me of another scene before we discuss the other scenes that we, you know, are our most memorable scenes where the boy, they come across a ransacked, abandoned house. You know, one of the, one of the homes they come across. And when the boy goes in, there's taxidermed animals in there. There's some taxidermy. There's like a deer head hanging on the wall. And... The boy is transfixed by it. And then you realize he's never seen a living animal. And if he has, he was an infant. So he has no remembrance of seeing a living creature. So that's the closest he's ever come was that deer head mounted on the wall. And they don't even, again, very Cormac McCarthy. He doesn't say that. It just shows you that. The boy is kind of transfixed by it, like staring at it. And it's touching. And, you know, that, it's so funny also, before we forget to say it, before I forget to say it, how... It's, it's such a feat. It's a marvel to me how descriptive Cormac McCarthy's writing is, not just in this book. I think this is the leanest of his books as far as, you know, as far as words and using words as tools and all that kind of stuff. I always talk about Blood Meridian. Blood Meridian's a little more descriptive, but it's still lean. But how descriptive he could be with such lean language is just unbelievable to me. It's so, it's so, it's such a marvel to me. But the other, the other thing about the boy, the other memorable scene for me with the boy, I don't remember, Kyle, you could remind me if they came across the, if it was the gas station or the abandoned supermarket, they come across a soda vending machine. Right. Early the on in the book. the boy has yep. his first taste of soda. You know, he's never had anything like that before. And they're enjoying the can of soda together. And you realize this kid's never had a treat. This kid's never had candy. He's never had soda. He has no idea what this thing is. You know, those things, probably by the time he was still an infant, these things had, had all been gone by the wayside. You know, they find this miraculous can of soda that they're enjoying together. But, you know, we do have to talk about the cannibal scene. So they come across a house. It's like an estate. You know, it's like a huge house. Like a manor. Like a Victor, like a, some kind of Victorian manor. And it turns out. Now, was it said in the book that there, there's a there's a at one point in the book, there's sort of a I don't know if the right word to refer to it as a militia of some sort. And it looks like they're whole, they're actually holding up in this house. And in the basement, they're keeping people that they're eating. So talk to me about that. Yeah. So the 
they're desperate. I mean, the, the, obviously, the constant theme here is desperation. They're really willing to do anything. And they rarely encounter anyone, even on the road. They, they literally travel on the road. So they're traveling in the easiest way possible. And every so often they encounter some bad people on the road or some, you know, ambivalent people. But generally speaking, they have to go off the beaten path to find food and like just search. And they know that most of it's hopeless because most of these places have been ran- long since ransacked. And right. they're literally like talking about going into like barns and finding like seeds in the hay and eating it and there's this scene where they take their shoes off to find apples that are like under inches of dust and ash or whatever that have fallen from this orchard of these dead apple trees and stuff like they're desperate. And so they go into this house and the boy has a bad feeling about it, but they go in and there's a door with a leading into a basement with a padlock on it. And the, the dad remarks like there's got to be a reason why this thing is padlocked. That this, this is everything's broken into and, and long since looted. And this is like a fresh thing. And people live here. And so they go into the basement and they find that there are people chained up, emaciated people in the basement, basically chained up, waiting like cattle to be killed and eaten. But the most touched or most touching, the most striking thing about it is that one they're basically eating them one by one and they're eating them basically piece by piece. So there's one person that I guess they're working on currently as everyone else watches and waits for their turn, that's basically strapped to a table. I think they said that his legs below his knees had been cut off or something like that. And uh, and like, basically, these people are like in really horrifying, you know, Holocaust-like shape. Oh, my God. And it just basically shows that these guys, there is a cannibal factory going on out of this matter, basically. And they're almost caught. The, the, the people come back and they basically just fucking run. They, they, yeah, they like break out. The, out. Yeah, out the, out the other door. And you never hear about, about it again. But And what's interesting is that the, the encounters with the militia or these like groups of survivors, it's unclear whether it's like a, an associated group. Are they the same people? I don't think so. I think it's like literally just bands of people Pockets, yeah. that are trying to survive. And, and another similar situation uh, where they use their bullet is another really uh, one of their bullets is another amazing scene because it is actually a really visual scene in the film. And we'll talk about the film in a few minutes is that they, there's like this this group of people. They, it's almost it's almost like Mad Max. It is when you think about it. Very this, much so. There's like this diesel engine running truck that is like slowly driving. There are people like walking. It's like walking in and ca- like accompanying this thing. And they're all emaciated and, and they don't have any like unifying clothing on or anything like that. They're all just like wearing whatever. And they're on the hunt for people. And they find one of them like kind of strikes off. I think go, go to the bathroom and in the in the woods and finds the boy and the and the dad's like laying there basically and it's a, one of the great scenes in the movie actually because really the guy's like this that boy looks hungry or something like that like they, they add a lot of like dialogue into it that's like pretty scary shit it's te- yeah it's tense and so the dad shoots the guy in the head and that bullet obviously makes noise and they have to fucking get out of there again and they're basically pursued by these these cannibals and there's another scene where or there are two other cannibalistic scenes that strike that are striking to me one is when they encounter these people. They, they, the people don't see them, but they see the people. It's like a few men and one pregnant woman walking down, like emaciated. And you don't know, are they harvesting the woman's baby to eat? It, we were talking about this last night. That doesn't really make any sense to me. No, that wouldn't make sense. Like, it seems like she's just pregnant and maybe they're going to eat the kid. But the, I don't think that they got her pregnant intentionally in order to eat the child. But then they encounter another encampment where the people are running away from them. And there's a baby, an infant on like a spit, a barbecue spit, basically, and they're and they're like cooking it. And so, these are the visuals from from the book. And the boy sees all these things. It, can you imagine the emotional scarring that's taking? 
You know, it's it's so it's so terrifying. And the boy, like the dad is really vigilant about making sure the boy doesn't look at things. He keeps saying to the boy, like, you can't unsee this stuff. And eventually the boy says, I see it anyway. And he just starts looking at everything. Right. And so it's an interesting thing. He's like, like, I see it whether or not I see it. I think I see it what I think I'm not looking at. So, yeah. So there's a it's a very violent. It's very violent. It's a violent book. It's a violent world, inherently terrible and violent world. But I got to ask you this because we talked about this and, and not knowing. I, I think it's safe to say we wouldn't be in one of these militias. I'd probably be long dead, first of all, oh in this situation, God. whether I had killed myself or whether I was probably more likely killed by someone. But or just died naturally. Or maybe I just died of hunger or something like that. But <laughs> this is such a loaded question, I guess, because I think everyone would answer no. But like, what would you do? Like, would you eat in another person? Situ- no. You know, yeah, I, I want I mean, like we said, I, who knows what kind of sickness, what kind of what what takes over your brain when you're literally like starving for days on on days, maybe even weeks, you know, who knows. But for me, for me personally, it's like, first of all, I would survive for my child. I could say that. But also, let's just say I'm by myself in that situation. You live your whole let's say I'm 45 years old when I'm 46 years old, some kind of utter devastation happens and I'm going to be alive for a couple more years where it's going to be really hard going and this is environment of cannibalism and all that kind of stuff. What was the point of living the way I lived trying to be not of course not perfect like any human but trying to live a moral life for 45 years and just ruining it in the last year. There's no way I would just survive. I, I like to think I would just survive as long as I can. And carry the same codes I've always carried and sort of like embrace the same ethos as I've always carried and just go to my grave when it was time. Yeah, you know? I, I would like to think that I would be the same way. Now, it's it's worth noting that in some cultures, cannibalism is not really looked down upon. But in, in and especially in a lot of like ancient cultures and, and with you know human sacrifice and, you know, I think a lot of and I want to say a lot of but there were some Native American tribes, American Indian tribes that would eat their enemies. I didn't know you that. Know, uh, I never knew that. I, I th- Yeah, because th- it was like they would absorb their power and their soul and stuff like that. Like wow. they would capture them and eat them. Holy cow. And uh, I think the I always get the Aztecs, the Incans and the Mayans confused. I was going to ask you about this. But I, th- like one of them, I think, was like on the same path as well. With, with Obviously, they were all, I think, human I think sacrificers. Right. But yeah, some of them. So I'm not trying to cast, I guess, moral judgment, but I kind of am, I guess, because we live in the West and that's just not an acceptable thing here. So. I live by that code. I, I think that our culture is superior in that way. We don't eat humans, right? It's like just a like sacred thing. Yeah, it's just it was just not we just don't play that way. So, yeah, I would like to think that I would be the same way. But who knows? You know, I, I again, I, I just that's what's so fascinating or one of the aspects of this book. Is so fascinating. It really does make you think about yourself. Like what? Oh, my God. The darkest part of you, right? Like the, the most unsavory, thoughtless part of you. I think comes out a little bit as you read the book because you start putting yourself in these situations Absolutely. and you start wondering, you know, more than any other work of fiction. I think it's that it has that thing of like constantly, you're constantly putting yourself in that situation throughout the book, situation after situation. I've, I don't think I've ever read or watched another piece of fiction where, where I do that more so than this one, you know, be, probably because it is the most hor- It's about the most horrific thing you could imagine. That's realistic, you know, it's not a, it's not fantastic in any way, really. It's very believable. You know, the situation, as horrific as it is, it's very, very believable. Now, one of the scenes, there is a scene that bothers me. I'm curious about what you think of this scene. So okay. there's a scene that's like a little bit uplifting where they find, randomly stumble across basically a 
some sort of shelter, a fallout shelter or whatever it is, built underground that's totally fully stocked. It had yeah. never been raided. The people who built it were presumably long dead and they find it and they they sleep and they eat and they drink and they're like in good shape there. And I really wondered, they eventually w- keep going, and I'm, but I'm like, why? Like, why wouldn't you stay there as long as possible? They keep insinuating that winter is getting worse and it's coming and, and it's settling in. And so for, at the very least, you would think that they would just settle in there for the winter. And then when they assumed spring would come back, that they would continue on their so- southward drive. So that's one scene I have to be honest. Like, that's one scene that really bothers me because it's this uplifting scene. But then they just walk away from it after a few days. And yeah. It's like, what are you doing? They have plenty. They have safety. Yeah, yeah he's afraid a fallout shelter or, or a storage basement. Of, right. You know, all the stores of, you know, jarred goods and canned goods and yeah, just anything, any kind of like non-perishable food store, just like they would have food for, for what do they say, for like months or something. Yeah, even more. I think even longer than that. I mean, they talk about, I think, like these 15 gallon, many 15 gallon drums of water and all this fuel and batteries. And it's, crazy. it's just like and a lot of the batteries are ruined, he says, and stuff like that because they're so old. But. Yeah, that confused me a little bit where I'm like, why wouldn't you? He's he keeps saying that he's afraid of being found. But I'm yeah. like, but no one's found this thing yet. So why would they find you? That's it doesn't make point. it really doesn't make sense. That's a great that's point. that's one part of it where I'm like, I, I don't know why you feel like it's a risk to stay here. It, yeah, it, it seems like it's the wisest opportunity for you to to make to make something of to make a go of this. You know, that's an awesome point. I mean, there is a notion, there's a continuous notion from the very beginning of the book when they first, you know, when they're on the road of that, we have to keep moving. We can never stay in one place too long. We can never be found because, and that, that makes sense because it's just a man and a boy, a sick man, actually, and a boy and a young boy. They don't have any kind of defenses. They have very limited, they have a gun with very limited ammunition. They, they can't, they can't be found. I get that. I get the urgency of that. And, and, you know, it also creates a lot of tension in the story. And one of the reasons why the story is such a page turner, why the book is such a page turner. But, yeah, that scene, they always I, I like that that's set and where it's set in the book, because it's really it, it creates a really brilliant contrast between, you know, their like hopelessness. It, it's it's bookended by hopelessness, basically, you know, and ble- the bleakest of situations. So I like it's almost like the can of soda scene on steroids you know so i like it for literary purposes i like it for contrast i like it for a break in the story and to give you a little bit of levity because this is a really dark book so to see these characters that you're starting to care about in a good situation and enjoying themselves and laughing this is the same same scene where they take a bath and they have soap yeah they cut they get shave and cut their hair and all this yeah you know they're actually human for a little while and i like that but yeah why wouldn't they just stay there yeah, I understand that they don't want to or can't be caught. But to me, it's just like that's an opportunity cost in this situation. Like th- this is a gold mine compared to what's going on out there. There's probably not much of this going on out there. There might be other places like this. But you're not going to find it. No, one. you'll never find it. So, yeah, it's very that to me was a little strange. I, I understand the urgency in him dying. And I think it's pretty clear that he's dying of like lung cancer or something because of all the ash in the sky, because they, they mentioned multiple times that they always wear masks over their face like they right they're constantly shielding their face and it seems pretty clear that the dad has that it's taking the toll on the dad right he's too young to have been dying of you know smoking or something like that but it's clearly a lung problem he's coughing up blood and stuff yeah, like that it could so, even be a lung cancer tumors right, right. whatever from that made yeah the car the car it's carcinogenic so yeah that that scene was a bit of a frustration to me but although it would have changed the nature of the story it's like they couldn't have just settled in and that would have been the end of the story i guess but i guess the urgency of the dad dying i guess he was just like i gotta get you out of here but i i don't know i would have probably played it a little differently if i were him or i'd like to think i would where 
I would have been like, let's settle in. I'm going to teach you what you need to know. I'm dying and I'm going to teach you what you need to know to survive. And we're going to figure this out and I'm going to die eventually. And you're going you're to be on your own. Yeah. Or I'll leave you the gun and you have the option to kill yourself if you want. Yeah. And that's something that he that's something that he brings up many times. It's amazing. Keeping that gun with at least one bullet. So suicide was, or at least two bullets. So suicide was always an option if things got dire. Right. So it's just. Oh, my God. What well, I mean, such a wonderful idea for a story. But I mean, it doesn't get much darker than that. Now, let's talk about the film. Jeremy Miller wrote it and said, hi, guys. Hi, guys. And his is G-U-Y-Y-Y-Y-S. So okay. four Y's. All right. I'll take it. The Road is one of the greatest and most faithful movie adaptations I've ever seen. My question is, what other works of Cormac's would you like to see adapted to film, TV, or animation? Oh, I know this answer. So we could talk about that in a minute, but I do want to, uh, about what you would, and you have way more knowledge on this than I do because I've never read his other works, but... I wanted to just mention the movie real quick because I actually totally agree. The film is actually really good. And it basically, it it's not a ruination of the book. I read the book first, but when I saw the film, I, I wasn't disappointed in it. I, I thought that it was really quite, quite interesting. And, uh, and I enjoyed it. So I'm curious what you thought about, about the, uh, about the movie. Did you see it? I did. I saw, I saw the film before I read the book, I think, as far as my best recollection goes, but they, that film translates the grayness and the bleakness of this of that of this book better than I think they than it was that we could have ever imagined. I mean in all fairness, there it, it's very it's very faithful to the book. Some st- stuff is a little more fleshed out than the book. I don't remember if the ending is different. No, I think the ending's the same it's where the they same, find right? the people in the Right, exactly the same. He's shot and that like with the arrow and then they, right. they come across the couple with the kids and stuff right, like right, that right. and they basically adopt them. Right. The We're, dad the dad dies at the end. The boy is left alone and alive at the end by himself for a little while. And then they find and he then finds the, another yeah. family. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean it's a it's a really it's really brilliant. Again though, it's like one of those it's one of those films it's it's a must see, I would say for sure. Based on a you know because it's based on a brilliant novel, but it's really one of those movies that is just like completely joyless. It's entertaining because of what's happening, but it's really it's ter- it's really terrifying. It's a terrifying film. I they did a great job. It's it's excellent. It stars uh, Viggo Mortensen and Cody Smith McPhee, and uh, Robert Duvall is the the man that they encounter. The old man. He, his role is really great. He came out of nowhere. I love that he was in He's it. Awesome. Robert Duvall's great. That's one of Dad's favorite actors. Actually, yeah, it is. And I think one of the things that the movie does that because you're talking about it fleshes out some different things. One of the things that it focuses on more, I think, than the book is the relationship between the dad and the, and the mom. Yes. And there is one scene in the movie that I don't think's in the book that is really memorable to me. I could be wrong, but I don't think it's in the book. Okay. He takes his wedding ring off at some point in the movie and places it. They're like walking over an overpass on you know the road and he places his wedding ring on like the side. And I think he like pushes it off the the. The bridge I don't remember that. or whatever. And that's not in the book, I don't think. Okay. But I like they flash back. They really give the wife more of a more pop in the movie than they do in the book. Yeah. Like she's kind of she's kind of villainized in the book a little bit through the perspective because you have an omniscient narrator here, but it's kind of through the perspective or the lens of the dad. And so you kind of don't like the mom because you feel like that she abandoned them, even though she's the voice of reason. Yeah. I think the movie does a little bit of a better job of explaining her position and it makes it more gray. You know, uh, from yeah, from because she's she's not. It's not like him remembering her. Like you see her, and I forget who plays her in the movie. Uh, Charlie's there. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so big actress, and she's you know. So you you see her, you visualize her, you see their house. They have a 
I think one of the shots is really interesting because I remember it's like a, they're looking out at this like fire on the hills and, you know, very similar to what Cormac McCarthy was inspired by to begin with. And you, you see a shelf behind her full of food and all this kind of stuff. And it's it's just it's still at that point a, a different but dark world. But at that point, she talks about how they're going to be murdered and and all that kind of right. stuff. So it had already gone like well off the deep end. There's so many questions like what happened to the government and what like. It's just it's just a lot of interesting stuff, but I really do highly recommend the film. I think you should read the book first and then watch the film so you you don't get your visuals ruined. It's like when people watch Lord of the Rings and then read the books. Well, you're always going to see Bilbo Baggins and all these people as those, you know, and Frodo and all these guys as those who played them in the movie. Yeah, I would I would much prefer that. I guess I shouldn't have said who played these people because now you're going to see them. Uh, in your head, that's maybe. what happened to me. You can't think of that old man without Robert Duvall, for right. instance. Yeah, that and indeed, it's so funny because that's the only character in the mo- in the book that I see as the person who played him. I don't see Viggo Mortensen as the dad. It's no? still in my head. No, I don't see him, and I don't even really know what Cody McPhee or whatever looks like. So it's not like in my ho- in my mind. Right, so it's right, like, right. I, That's not ruined for me. But yeah, Robert Duvall for some reason is definitely oh, the old he's, man. He's so iconic. Yeah, great, you know? great casting. You know, and, and interesting that he took that role because it's one scene. Yeah. You know, and he's a big time actor. Yeah, but so, you could see him liking Cormac McCarthy. Right. Right. You could see him as, I, I don't know that, I'm guessing, but yeah, no, you're right, though. And maybe maybe they fleshed out the thing between the mom and the dad in the film because Charlize Theron needed to have more screen time. I mean, she is a big movie star, and you could see her being a fan of, you know, great, a great work of literature. But I like the wedding. I they, In the movie, they show, they do argue, they, they do express that they have a you know their philosophies are different the the mom and dad's philosophies are different i like that the wedding ring the wedding ring scene though because i like the idea of that because it's a breaking of it's it's you know it's a visualization of the breaking of the dad from the mom as far as like i'm abandoning your philosophy like you 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 were wrong and i was right type of thing but they do argue in the movie you see them arguing over it and it's heartbreaking because you understand both sides of it you know, you understand why the dad wants to go on. You understand why the mom is completely dejected and it's utter hopelessness. You know, you understand both point, both sides of the coin. There's a good, both, you know, both sides have a good case. You know, it's just, it's just, can you imagine having to make that decision? It's just, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and she apparently just kind of walks out in the movie. I don't remember what happens in the book. I, I, I just read it again, so I, I should remember this. I don't know if they go into it, but yeah. in the movie, she just walks out and like walks out into the world like that's how she kills herself she just goes outside and just walks away and, and she's dead it's horrifying so really that's is. that was an interesting thing too I, I didn't really i was like all right so you're that's afraid it. of being captured and eaten and raped and all this kind of stuff but you're just gonna walk outside and right. why, why don't you just put a bullet in your head at that point you know uh so that was yeah that was a little bit of an interesting kind of thing but i do recommend the movie it's it's one of those well it's not that rare i guess there are good adapt there are plenty of good adaptations of of books uh, i think that that's kind of overblown a little bit but Highly recommended the movie as well. Oh, definitely. And I would love to see Blood Meridian made into a movie. It's my favorite Cormac McCarthy book. I've been trying to get Colin to read this book for years. He's going to absolutely love it. You know, basically about, well, I won't won't say what it's about. Read read Blood Meridian. You'll know instantly what it's about. And I love, you know, actually an interesting thing I found out being such a big Cormac McCarthy fan over the last 10 years, apparently James Franco optioned Child of God which is another one of Cormac McCarthy's great novels. I think he wrote that in the 70s, which is a really interesting story. Another horrific story, actually. Uh, Sort of on keel with Blood Meridian and No Country and The Road. But uh, yeah, I would love to see Blood Meridian made into a movie. I think it would be very difficult. I'm sure somebody's optioned it. I think it would be one of those things that would be very difficult to make that particular novel 
you know, make a screenplay out of that novel because it doesn't necessarily have a plot. It centers around a lot of characters. It centers around basically like this. It basically centers around one figure who's like Satan, basically, and what transpires in the story is basically the evil that surrounds this one thing or person, the, the judge, his name is in the story. But, I mean, you want right. I always tell this. I was saying this to um, Sophia, who writes for Colin for SideQuest. We were DMing one day, and we were talking about books, and I, we were talking about Cormac Yeah, she's McCarthy. a voracious reader. Yeah, she was. we were really going. She's like, what are your favorite books? And I said, Blood Meridian is one of my favorites. And I think, I think she said it's one of her favorites, too. And I said, that would be – that book – is so well written that it makes you feel like you should never write another thing. That's how well written that book is. Everything that he says is perfect. Every way that he says it, you know. And you know, we we were talking about, you know, we said a lot. We've gushed about Cormac McCarthy as a writer throughout this episode, but it's and like it's like it reminds me of great art, great visual art or a great painting or a great drawing. Whatever it's it's just as much about what you leave out as what you put in. And that makes it, to me, that makes a great work of art and that makes great writing as well. And that's why he's so good. Yeah, I can't wait for Colin to read Blood Meridian. I know he's busy, but. Yeah, I'm going to, I really do want to get more into his just back catalog. Great audiobook too, if you just want to hear, hear the audiobook. I don't like, I don't care for audiobooks no? very much. I like reading. You know, like I understand that it's, a, it's a, a great way for commuters and stuff to just, to read if they're driving. It's just, you know, people are busy and stuff. But, and yeah, we're all busy. But yeah, I, I that's why I just don't. One of the reasons I don't mean read much literature these days, and actually as an adult, I don't read much literature is because I feel like with my time at such a at such a uh, premium that I feel like I, I feel I have this thing in my mind where I feel like I need to learn something or have know something by spending this time. So I read tons of nonfiction. But even then, I, I'm probably down to 10 books a year at this point, which is pretty bad because I was probably reading That's more than me. I was probably reading two, three, four times that at my highest, you know, I was reading a lot of books when I was like, had more time to do that. But it's just, you know, as the old saying goes, who has the time? <laughs> Dig, as we get towards the end of our conversation, I'm just wondering if there's anything I've left out that you wanted to touch on before we. Uh, no, we, I mean, we besides gushing about Blood Meridian, eventually when you maybe we'll do, maybe we'll do a couple of books. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to when I get back to L.A., I'm going to buy all of his books on Amazon. Just have them shipped to me. It's then, nice. I think the dating. road is a nice place to start because it's nice to. I mean, we could certainly do a No Country. Do you ever read or see No No Country? For I think Old I Man? saw the movie, but I, I definitely didn't read the, the book. The book is amazing, but and that the book is actually. I would say No Country. The I love the movie, but the book is actually better. But No Country and especially The Road is a great place to start because it's nice when you could talk. You could center a conversation. We talk mostly about the book, but it's nice when there's you know an adaptation. You know, on screen, whether it's a miniseries or a TV show or a movie to to accompany it. And but I would highly recommend to you guys, if you're fans of awesome literature, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy and the Border Trilogy of books, which is all the pretty horses, which, of course, was made into a film, The Crossing and Cities of the Plain, which is maybe one of my favorite Cormac McCarthy books. Cities of the Plain is just heartbreaking. It's a wonderful. That's a wonderful trilogy. Of what's books. the what's the what's the overarching theme or what's the story? It of centers the around one character who's like a young cowboy in in Mexico and his you know his adventures you know from being a farmhand and from his, you know falling in love with a you know a Mexican woman and just you know sort of a coming of age story, uh, a little bit of a love letter to cowboy culture, but also very similar to No Country in that sort of a Sort of a little bit of a parable on 
not only on just growing up, but on the dangers inherent in growing up and also sort of the dangers inherent in like the Mexican drug trade and all that kind of stuff. Very similar to, similar to No Country in that respect. It, be, it, go, it goes there, but it takes three books in order to go there, you know, in order to, to, to center around that, those same characters. But just so memorable. I think I've read I've literally read Cities of the Plain probably three times. You know, so they're relatively short. They're 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 shorter. Blood Meridian is also a quick read. I forgot how, who turned me on to that book, but who man? I mean, that goes to dark places too. That book, you know. Just, yeah, I think that's gonna be the next one I, I read. That's that's a dark one. Yeah, I feel like I need to open my mind up more to literature again because I was so into it as a younger person, and I don't know why I have this just desire to just feel like I need to walk away with something from a book more than just a feeling, but more like oh, I know. You know, I'm reading like all sorts of fucking weird shit, you know, about astronomy and, and anthropology and all these kinds of things. And they're tough reads like th- that's the other thing is like you really got to you can't zone out when you read some of this stuff. Right. You know? And so I don't no. know why I, I don't know why I do that to myself, but my my shelf is just full of these scholarly books for some reason. I don't know why it's not ruined my my love of reading because that, that would never happen. But it's definitely like stymied my ability to want to read because, I, you know, you got to go with that, though, because you know what? You go through phases. You know, I, I, remember, I went through a huge phase. You know this, Kyle. I went through a, probably a. 10 year phase of reading biographies i read like two biographies a week i would literally go into the library go to the biography section and just be like all right what looks interesting could be an actor could be an athlete it could have been a politician could have been an artist a writer a cartoonist an animator didn't matter i would just go a movie director i got really into movie i don't think there's one movie director biography i didn't read at least one for each movie director like name a movie director i read their bio at least one biography you know i would just go through could even be movie producers weird stuff you know, I would, and I would just, Babe Ruth, wherever it was. I read like nine Steven Spielberg memoirs. Just, you know, I went through that phase where I, I did not read any fiction. That was it. I read biographies. I was just, I would just devour them. You know, that was also similar to my, that was probably in the same time as my Charlie Rose phase where I just wanted to learn everything about every interesting person. You know, I would watch every episode of Charlie Rose because he would have like in one week, he would have Tony Hawk on, he would have, you know, Martin Scorsese you know, a famous, you know, a famous writer, a famous journalist, a famous politician, you know, Obama, you know, Barack Obama, whoever it was, he would in one week, it would be like, I would just devour it. I just, you know what I love? I love seeing passionate people or hearing passionate people talk about the thing they love. I don't even care what it is. You know what I mean? As long as they're passionate about that thing, I could just listen to that for days. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I mean, that's kind of the spirit of fireside chats, which is uh, for people that don't know my, my interview yeah, series. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's a similar thing. I, I'm with you. Yeah, I think I. Yeah, we ebb and flow. So I, I think I probably should embrace that. Go with it, my friend. But yeah, the road is available. It's available in paperback. And you can um, obviously it's also available if you read your books digitally and you can get an audio book. It's, it's not an expensive book. It's a very common book. You can obviously get it at your local library, I'm sure. And of course, the film is available on DVD. I think it's probably available on Blu-ray as well. And you can stream it on Amazon. You have to buy it, of course, or rent it. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> uh, so, Dave, let's wrap up with uh, some of our closing segments. Okay, so we're going to do lightning round versus mode. A very morbid lightning round. Excellent. I love it. I love morbid morbidity, book. as you know. I don't know if anyone realized that. Then yet. you will love this round. Okay. Are you ready, my friend? Yes. Okay. Massive comet strike or nuclear war? Massive comet strike. The radiation's too too scary. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Starve to death or eat somebody? Starve to death. 
Would you rather be very in a very in a survivalist situation? Now? Mm. Would you rather be in a very hot climate or a very frigid climate? Huh. Uh, frigid. It's a tough one, isn't it? I think frigid because you can do something about that. Yeah, Eventually, you, you can't do anything about being too hot. It's, I think I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Especially because you, you wouldn't thirst seems like one of the hardest things for me. And you would think you would be maybe a little less thirsty in a frigid climate. I don't know. Yeah, it's, they make the point that there's like no shortage of water. It's dirty, but they drink it, you know. Oh, yeah. In the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. That's they actually true. actually talks about how they just filter it very simply by putting cloth over water bottles and then dumping the water in and just whatever it catches. It right. Catches, exactly. And then they just drink it anyway. Right, right, yeah. right. Carry the fire or suicide. In that situation, suicide. You're going with suicide. In, in the situation they find themselves in, I don't yes. think I think it's completely hopeless. I don't know why you would even want to bother. Right. It's. This is a very uplifting round of yes. of light, of well, for an uplifting round. book, indeed. <laughs> exactly. Canned peaches or just starve to death? Just starve to death. Can, canned fruit is the most disgusting thing. Yeah, I agree. Especially peaches. Yeah, I don't understand. Even they talk about like them drinking the, the, the like, syrup. Nectar. Yeah, the yeah. syrup, right. And stuff. And I'm like, oh, I, mean, I guess you would do whatever you need. I mean, it's probably very caloric, you know, so it's probably very valuable in that time. But true. Yeah. I mean, I, I would probably love canned peaches if I was fucking starving to death. <laughs> I'd like to think I would still hate them. Yeah. <laughs> but who knows? Okay, so okay, so you're in a post-apocalyptic a post-apocalyptic setting in real life. Would you rather be in a city urban environment or in the country? In, in the, the country. Okay. I think the cities would be the first places to fall, like pretty quick in those situations. Yeah. I think it would be pretty much game over at that point for anyone in a city. And everybody would be there trying to get whatever resources they could. Yeah, I think that like I always, t- I, you know, I'm prepared for the apocalypse as much as I can be. And I kind of want it to happen. But uh, I'm, pr- I, I'm pretty... S- prepared for we had a couple of pretty bad earthquakes actually in southern california right before i came here yeah the worst earthquakes i've ever felt and i've lived in california and felt many earthquakes for they were big, 12 years man. yeah the the i think the last one was a 7.1 but that's it was but it was out in bakersfield that's a powerful earthquake that's that's more that's bigger than the one that destroyed san francisco in 1906 or whatever it was and that's like that's that's wow. a big earthquake but it was far away it was like equidistant between us and vegas but we were riding the wave man in our in our apartment building and one of them woke me up and the other one happened when i was playing a video game and i stood up and we were like is it gonna get worse like what do you do right you don't know but i brought that up only because i have like in my closet i think i showed it to you in my closet i have like 20 something gallons of water i have like this ridiculously huge bowie knife i have like a bunch of flashlights <laughs> and like candles matches some medical supplies a bunch of canned food all sorts of stuff in my closet. But I'm, not peaches. Not peaches. No, but I, it's like a lot of chili and stuff like that, and and nice, and, thing, nice. and things like that. Um, how long will that stuff like a can of Hormel chili? How long does that last? It's like three years, so I have to replace everything oh. next year. I was gonna buy like MREs or something like that, or mm-hmm. like there's like survival websites that like sell this stuff, but I know rations. that they do it at like a premium, you know. So I, I want to figure out a way. Like I would love to be able to buy like government rations or something like that from the government. I would totally do it. You, you can't know? do it. I don't think so. I don't. Maybe from their pr- provider, but you need to find who that person, who that, you know, who that was, because I would love to just have that stuff stored away. The only thing I'm missing at this point is a gun. And and that's that's going to be rectified soon enough. You, you know? think so? Oh, definitely. You're yeah. going with that. Yeah, I want to. I wish I could just buy. One. I was telling Aaron, like, I haven't shot a gun in a while. I want to, like, go and take a class and learn how to really properly use it and clean right. it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I like shooting guns, but I want to be like a professional with it. But I was telling her, like, I don't really that's a big thing. It's a big to do and stuff. I'm like, can I just order like a couple, you know, Berettas online and a bunch of ammo and just shove it in my closet? and We can just worry about it later, you know, and then, and then you I just buy stuff online. I don't think you... I don't think so. Oh, it has to be done. In... I, I thought, thought it had to be done in person. Before. I don't think so. As long as you pass that waiver period. 
I guess I, it depends. It's a state by state thing. I, you would I, think it, they couldn't mail that. Stuff. I, I would I would doubt it. But They're like because I, I, I would love to just grab a couple of guns and some ammo and just throw it in the closet. And it's like, well, it's there if we will learn how to use it if we have to, I guess. <laughs> Listen, make sure you also get a shopping cart. Yeah, we need a shopping. You're yeah. gonna need one of those. Well, there's plenty of shopping carts around. I us. could not help but think now. Maybe this is ta- maybe this is an old supermarket guy talking now. Old produce hand, right? That was a pretty high quality shopping cart. Wheel never even broke off. I know it's unbelievable. That's that's pretty crazy. He only there's only one scene where he repairs it. So it's yeah. like it's like yeah, they really. Uh, I mean, that's a high quality. I mean, whoever made that shopping cart. Reminds me, of, reminds me of that guy Bubbles on Trailer Park Boys, which which by, have you watched that show at all? Digging that show, no. Aaron and I are in like the third season. That show is like something else, man. Really? Yeah. It is so funny. Really? Yeah. It, is, it takes place park? in Nova Scotia. Okay. And like a trailer park in Halifax. Okay. It's like so funny. I man. know people there. It's a really, really. I was like shocked. That's funny. I got to. All right. So it's been what, on for like 15 years or 16 years. What is that on? Where, where Netflix bought it. It started Netflix. in Canada. It's a Canadian show, obviously. But yeah, it's on Netflix now. Good, worth watching. Oh, definitely, excellent. Oh, all right, maybe we'll do an episode on it. I would love that. Yeah. All right. It's not actually over yet, so I don't know if we can do that. But oh, it's still going. Yeah. Wow, and it's that. It started old? in two thousand. Yeah. It's Holy still, it's still moly! Going. It's like a lot of the same people and stuff. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Actually, I will check that out. I got a hard one for you. Okay. The Road or Red Dawn? Oh wow! I know that's tough. <sighs> Red Dawn. I think I would say. Okay. Yeah. And Red Dawn will play a little bit of a, a role in our next conversation. We haven't even doing. done Red Dawn yet. What I is know. going well, on? Well, that's what You know what? I feel like Red, Kyle, Red, we talked about this. Red Dawn, I feel like Red Dawn, Final Fantasy 3 slash 6. I kind of feel this way about Final Fantasy 7. I kind of feel this way about Wild Arms, although that's a special one for me and you more so than maybe the vast majority of people. The, Star Wars. New yeah, Hope. we never did a New Star Hope. Star Wars right? New Hope. Those are the holdout episodes that we have to sort of string people along. Like, we're going to do these ones eventually, but not, you know what I mean? Yeah, those that's like are, one of those big pops, like every other wave or something like that. It's you know? just a huge, that's a huge one that people have to wait for. It's like a milestone. One. Right, right. Like a hundredth episode. Yeah, that's a good point. You know what I mean? Especially Final Fantasy VI. Definitely. Oh, my God. I, I can't wait. I wish they would release it on PS4. It would be nice. Yeah, I wonder what they're waiting for. Maybe they got plans for it. Square Enix is obnoxious. That's what they're waiting for. <laughs> Oh, wait, so you didn't answer. Road or Red oh, Dawn? No, I did say Red Dawn. Oh, Red Dawn. Okay. Red Dawn, right. Would the road make... Well, we talked about this a little bit with Last of Us. And by the way, guys, Last of Us will be doing a Last of Us episode. I would say, Kyle, would you say in all fairness within the next year, probably? Oh, less than that. It won. So we'll probably do it the next wave. Oh, that's right. It won. Yeah, you guys voted for that one on, on Patreon. Remember, you can you can vote on topics every month on Patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. It's one of your perks. And uh, you guys chose the. That's right. From when we're recording this, the last winner was the last of us, but Dagan needs to play it first. So we'll do it in the fall. That's my next game. Yep. So we'll do it in the fall. Please get the PS4 version. Don't be the. You keep doing weird shit on PS3. No, I'm I'm on. I'm on board. Okay, cool. I'm on board. I played. played When you played Bioshock on PS3, I almost killed myself. (laughs) You were really offended. Personally offended. (laughs) Just because like you spent like $10 on that. And I'm like, if you for $15, you could have gotten all three of them. I know. I had to get out of that. But look, be proud of me for RE2 remake, right? Yeah, I, I on the PS4. Yep, you're absolutely Virtual. right. I was very excited for you. Welcome. So would would the road make a good, the road itself? Right. Would that make a good video game? Yes or no? Playing that, you know, picture like a survival horror thing, hmm. but maybe literally it's about maybe you have the gun with a with a handful of bullets, but that's all the that's all the ammunition you're going to get. Yeah, that would be interesting. So it's about other things. Yeah, I don't know. I I'm probably not because it's too big. It's too big of a book. It is big. It would be an interesting like walking simulator or adventure game, I guess. Yeah. You could do something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. What what could you do like if you if if combat wasn't an integral part of the game? 
is it enough to just like find things to eat and drink to survive? Definitely, or, dude. There are there are lots of games like that. Yeah, there's games like that, but I'm saying in a, in in a in something with the scope of the road. Which yeah, I don't know. I, it would be yeah. You'd have to add that element of persistent danger into the game. Yeah, like that. evading, being chased. Yeah, because there's like even good survival horror games like Outlast are all about avoiding. Like you don't fight in that game. So yeah, they they could do something. It would be very complicated, and I don't know that protection might be an element we have to protect the boy yeah it would be cool to it would what would be interesting is to play something in the world of the road without it being about them yeah oh that's interesting without without it centering on those two Mm -hmm. characters maybe in like a different part of the country different part of the world yeah i like that we'll keep that in mind for when we open our development studio that would be great it's a dream you know the game i want to make i although i I never i never told anyone about what except for you but i know Mm -hmm. kyle eat a dog or eat a rat eat a rat I'd really have a hard again that's a cultural thing in China dogs are eaten regularly I mean that's a that's a common thing that's not meant to be an offensive thing I think that that's really a lot happening there right because that's part of their culture but I couldn't even it it would be like that's like one step below eating a human for me I don't know that yeah I think for a lot of people yeah maybe maybe I would maybe I would eat a dog if I really had to but I don't know it's like when I went to Iceland and uh, one of my companions there was, was ate a horse ate like horse Oh, wow. And like really struggled with it afterwards. How do you say it tasted? Bad. It wasn't good. Apparently. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because yeah, I wouldn't imagine that it's a, it's a very lean meat. There's no fat, right? Necessarily. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't. It was just we went to a nice restaurant in Reykjavik and they were. Yeah, that, and they, they served that, that. That was the he wanted to eat like something of the culture, I guess. And so wow. that's what he got. Yeah. Holy cow. Well, I hear Boston Terrier is pretty good. <laughs> I'm just saying. They make you crazy. Kill or be killed. Depends. You know. There's plenty of situations where I would kill. I mean, I, I, that that's not. I always, I'm a. Pa- I consider myself a pacifist, and I'm not. I'm nonviolent. Uh, I don't believe in. I don't like war. I don't like any of those kinds of things. But right. to say, like, I wouldn't. I'm not Gandhi. I'm not gonna like let you beat me to death or something like that. You know, I would fight back. So there's there's of course many situations where a person would rationally kill. So it depends on the situation. I guess there are situations where I would I would be killed, but I don't know that I would ever go down without fighting. You know. Hear you on that, my friend. Live and let die. <laughs> you thought Axel Rose was here for a second. Be honest. Yeah, I did. That did was very good. You probably you probably sound better than he does these days. Oh, I don't know about that. Dagan, let's end with some dad oh, jokes. Oh, dad jokes. I forgot. Let me pull those babies up, my friend. Now I'm excited. Yeah, we need some levity in this episode. Yeah, it's getting, a little, I mean? it's getting a little dark in here, huh? Well... It's the road. Where it you, is. You know, I wish he, I wish he named the book something else, because you automatically think of what the Jack Kerouac. Yeah, right? road less traveled. So, oh, is that no? The road less traveled is. Uh, is it on the road? Yeah, on the road. The on road less traveled is Jack is Frost, right? Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's it's that always comes up even when you're researching. It's like I don't. All right, I know it's two. There's two the roads, but couldn't you call it something else? Yeah, it's not. It's not the most provocative name let's say that's right? true too yeah no, not known for his provocative titles though although i think no country for old men is a cool title i think blood Meridian is a cool name that's a cool title you're right about that all right kyle spring is here i got so excited i wet my plants <laughs> no. that's a really bad one yeah that's no good i went with the first one that came up though all right okay kyle if snoop dog dies before pot becomes legal in the whole u.s He'll be rolling in his grave. (laughs) We'll leave it on that one. That's a very Colin joke. It is, but that doesn't make any sense because what would stop him from rolling in his grave, whether it was legal or not? 
He's been rolling. Yeah, that's true. Long before it was legal in California. Snoop. Nothing's going to st- stop Snoop lying. Dude, people can't believe that. Like how just completely legal marijuana is in California when they, when they come visit. You know, look at I, the huge difference between like Pennsylvania and California. You got on the plane you in four f- to five hours. You were in a place where it's not legal. Yeah. And I can go to a. St- I, I literally get it delivered to my apartment. You get it delivered. And it's totally up on the up and up. It's not. It's, it's not like it's very like some strange. Because I used to get very... weed delivered when I was illegal too. <laughs> yes, you did. We're living in very strange times. It is. It's only a matter of years before it's federally. What are they hanging on to? It's like just legalize it everywhere. What is the pro? Is it a, is it a money thing? I'm a little. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think some people really do think it's a gateway. Still, uh, I think that that's. I think. I think anything can be a gateway. I think alcohol is probably a much bigger gateway. I agree. If not, if even if not, at best, it's the same size gateway. Well, we talked about it on another show. Like I'm, a, I'm, I've been smoking weed for half my life, and I've never had the desire to do any hard drugs. It's just maybe I'm different. Maybe other people are different, but I think that that probably has something to do with it. I think it's just a cultural and generational thing. I think the, the what like the greatest generation wasn't into it, and then the baby boomers were di- did it, but they kind of kept it on the hush. And right. Gen X did it, and they kind of kept it more on the hush. And then they got to me, you know, Gen Y and the millennials, and we were a little more open about it. And now I think it's like the millennials and this next generation that are just gonna you know kind of tip the card over because. There are no there's nothing adverse happening in the states that have legalized it. Nothing. There's nothing happening. Right. Except for just lots of money being made by the government. That, dude, I buy one hundred dollars or one hundred and twenty dollars worth of weed and I'm paying thirty dollars in taxes on it. You know, okay. and and people are like, wow, that's so expensive. And I'm like, guess what? It's still twice as cheap as it was on the black market, even with all those taxes. Absolutely. And indeed, there's like a complete race to the bottom in the California weed market, because I mean, weed is like inc- I, I, I can't even believe how cheap marijuana is like. When, when I was in college, we were paying $350 for an ounce of weed, a bad weed. Wow. Yeah, and, that's what I was going to talk to you about, the quality. Yeah, we, we never, I, dude, I never smoked weed that was anything better. I thought I was smoking good weed until I moved to California. But, you know, I can get the highest quality weed available legally from a reputable grower and any strand I want. Right, for and half it's the, safe. Yeah, for probably $200 an ounce. You know delivered it's safe. To See, my the apartment. safety thing would be a huge boon for me. That's the that's the thing that always confused me. Now, um, uh, you hear stories. I think uh, one of our sisters tells a story about how she accidentally smoked weed that was laced once and, and yeah. all that kind of stuff and yeah. had a really bad experience. Yes. And that stuff happens. I accidentally smoked, uh, like we said in our previous show, I've accidentally smoked opium because yeah. of that. You and Ramon. But I just don't like this whole thing of like, who's poisoning their weed? Like and selling it, you know, like it's that was all, like you would hear like there's rat poison and weed coming out. It's like, who's doing that? Who would do that? Why would you do it? Like, why would you do that? Because right. this is to make money. So you would want your weed to be as safe and as high quality as possible. You're kill your customers. So that never made it. That never made a lick of sense to me, whether I was buying it in North Bellport or whether I was buying it in Boston or, you know, in California. And I had a, a medical marijuana card, too, before it was legal for everybody. So, right. I was still I had I've been going and buying it in a store legally for like seven years. It's not like this is it's just that now I don't have to have a medical marijuana card i can just do it as a as a consumer sure sure it's funny because medical marijuana was legalized in california in 1996 and it there's still wow. there's still states that and legalized in 2016 completely actually we voted it down in 2012 or 2010 in california we voted and it didn't pass so which was really surprising so i don't see the downside to it it's just like i think a lot of it has to do with like a it's a more conservative thing the more conservative states are just going to have a harder time getting it getting it to go. But once border, once states, once you have a situation where anyone can go to a state pretty easily and get it on board on the border of states in which it's illegal, then then it'll collapse. And in other words, it. when it's available in enough states. Right. And so in other words, if you're in uh, what's a good well, New England's a great, a great example, 
because the states are somewhat small up there. If you're in Massachusetts and it's legal and it's well, it wouldn't it wouldn't be this way if you were in New Hampshire where it was legal and it, you and you lived in Massachusetts on the border, you can just drive in New Hampshire and buy it and then drive back. Right. So what is the point of Massachusetts? And by the way, you're, you're never further from the farther from the New Hampshire border in Massachusetts than like an hour, no matter where you are in the right. state. So great point. So at that point, then there's no reason for Massachusetts that's not to just legalize that's it. That's a great point. And once Massachusetts does it, then everyone in Rhode Island can go to Massachusetts and buy it. So then there's no reason for people in Rhode Island not to yeah, just legalize it's be it. A domino yeah, effect, exactly. For sure. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But, but that not makes the, total sense. Yeah. But not the, you know, the original domino effect, of course, was the uh, was the communists taking everything over. That's not that <laughs> domino effect. It's a different domino effect. I thought the first domino effect was dominoes. Dominoes. Yeah. Or fast like domino. the actual dominoes. Well, Dave, that's all we have for this episode of Knockback. I like it, my friend. It Dad good just texted me he's coming tomorrow to visit. Oh, excellent. So we will record with him. Would you like to? Oh, we will. Yes. Okay, cool. We'll do it. We're going to get it this time? Well, we'll find out. <laughs> we don't know. We're just not gonna I don't want to make any promises. Don't overcommit. Yeah, I'm not going to overcommit. But uh, is there anything? We were just talking earlier when you were sleeping. He really appreciates all the razzing. Yeah. All the shots we're taking. Right. You want to throw one in real quick before yeah. we end the episode? I don't know that I have anything on the top of my head that I All can right. say. We'll get him tomorrow. Then. We'll get him tomorrow to his face. <laughs> Just make sure he brings the bagels. And tell oh, him to go point. to a Valley stream and go to Bagel Boss so we can. Oh, get... my God. Maybe he'll bring Bagel Boss. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. By the one, by the way, there are three Bagel Bosses and the Bagel Boss that Bagel Boss lost his mind in was in Bayshore. So actually confirmed. Clo- yeah. So actually way closer to us then. Dude, way closer. It's it's like literally a miles from my best where my best friend lives. He's in Babylon. Right. What? We got to send PJ to Bagel Boss immediately. <laughs> PJ's I, probably already on it. I told Colin because we found all of Bagel Boss's. It's a big, it's a long story, but we found all his videos on YouTube. Apparently, this guy films himself getting in altercations with people and then puts them on his own YouTube channel, basically incriminating himself. And YouTube actually since then has deleted his channel. So the person who put everything up is like a savior. They saved all Oh, stuff. is that right? But this guy, I mean, what you guys saw, if you guys saw the Bagel Boss thing and if you saw the 7-Eleven thing, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Oh, my God. We were we lost probably a couple hours watching this guy's videos. We saw so many videos from all over Long Island that I told Colin, guaranteed, once I cro- if I drive to Long Island from where I live, from Philly, cross over the Queens-Long Island border into Nassau County, give me three hours, I will find this man. <laughs> three hours, tops. The problem is you have to look, you have to look up and you also have to look down, so it might take you a little bit of time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm six feet tall. Suck it, bagel boss. <laughs> all right, Dave, let's get the hell out of here. All right, my friend. Thank you all for your love, kindness, and support. Remember to support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand for early ad free access. If you want to be a freeloader, we still love you and appreciate you. Tell your friends and family about our show, about Collins Last Stand. Leave us nice reviews on podcast services, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Carry the fire. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Santa Monica, California and the Philadelphia suburbs of Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. Any snail mail can be sent to our P.O. Box, P.O. Box 1233, Santa Monica, California, 90406. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. 
The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Chris Adams, Carlos Algarit, Morgan Ashley, Taylor Barkley, Adam Barnes, Justin Bearden, Martin Beck, Eric Bishop, Mark Boggio, Eli Blossford, Andrew Bonnell, Barrett Boswell, Spencer Brand, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixie, Eric R. Brown, Jimmy Brown, Jason Budnick, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Nick C., Alex Cabrera, Nick Calloway, Tom Cargill, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Brian Chan, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Rodney Coleman, Simon Conception, Brad Cooley, John Cordero, Gio Corsi, Nick Cottrell, Philip Crone, Daniel D'Amour, Colin Davenport, Mitchell Durkash, Zachary Douglas, Knight Draft, David Ellis, Martha Emery, Liam Fagan, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Chris Galvin, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Jonathan H., Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Shane Hendrickson, Wide Henry, Scott Hernandez, Asa Haas, Johnny Humphreys, Blake Israel, Azan Isa El Ricey, Josh Yeager, Garrett Jaggard, Jimmy Jolicure, Joshua Jonathan, Greg Julius, Anton Kay, Patrick Kelly, Jeremy Key, Auntie Kinnanen, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Kenneth Kopnick, Joshua Koga, Andre Kozachka, Ron Kroskoff, Jackson Lostiqua, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Duncan Leishman, Matthew Lenz, Jeffrey Leonard, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith A. Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Colin Love, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, David Mann, Peter Mark, Matt Martin, Michael Martinez, Sean Mason, Jordan Mouse, Zachariah McAdoo, John McCarthy, Josh McKinney, Joe McPartland, Philip J. Melk, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Midling, Matthew Miller, Alex Moans, Chris Moore, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Ryan Murdoch, Adam Nick, Donnie Nolan, George A. Nunez, Grayson Orr, Brian Ott, Jesse Owen, Jorge Palomino, Andrew Parker, Daniel Parsons, Marius S. Peterson, Gerald Pennington, Matthew Perdue, Enrique Perez, Jason Pettit, Travis Plymel, Tipo Poplier, Louis Powell, Lawrence F. Prokop, Shero Kader Hama Karim, Andrew Ramos, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Mark Richardson, Toby D. Riemenschneider, Daniel Rivas, Johnny Rosado, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Jose Salinas, John Schultz, Michael Shanholz, Toby Schutman, Glendon C. Simper, Joshua Smallwood, Daniel Streicher, Wesley Simmons, Ahmad Tamar, Will Vlander, Ben Thompson, Ren Todd, Carl Tolman, Alan Tremblay, Raymond Vargas, Michael Vecchio, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Troy Walters, Connor Walton, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Josh Wire, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Hugo's Desk, Organic Produce, Jeff, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Homeworld Hub, Throw7, Infinite, Madmock Media, Fabian, Not Your Real Dad, Mubarak, Richter86, Andrew, Ian, Chris, Dav9834, Scott, Rainick, Donk2015, and Gavin.